Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. But folks, thanks for being here. The way this debate is going to work is this going to be longer than usual. It's going to have three different sections. So in particular, we're going to have one hour that focuses on the evidence for God, then one hour on the evidence for Islam, and then one hour on ethics and more in particular on secular humanism versus Islamic ethics. So we are going to start with Matt for each section. There are 10 minute openings for each section, followed by 40 minutes of dialogue, and then there are 30 minutes of Q&A at the end. And then if you can do me a favor and silence your phones for the debate, thanks very much. And Matt, thanks for being with us. The floor is all yours for your opening statement. Thanks everybody for showing up. Uh, my apologies from the start. I'm on medication that may cause me to have like hiccupy burp things that might make me pause. I'm not having a Mitch McConnell moment. I'm just trying not to be rude. Uh, and James has already managed to get Daniel and I to agree on microphones. I don't expect us to agree on a lot after that, but that's where we're at. The first of the three topics uh, is, is there evidence of God? Um, and by that, for me, as we saw a little bit in the previous debate, is objective, verifiable facts that are consistent with a proposition. I promise I'm not going to go through everything that we went through in the previous debate, but there's a reason why we look for objective, verifiable facts, and that's because subjective, unverifiable suspicions just aren't a reliable path to truth. If there's a better way to get to a reliable understanding of reality, somebody would need to demonstrate it. And so this is why I'm seeking objective, verifiable paths. It is the most scientific, reliable path to truth, or the most consistently reliable, demonstrable path to an accurate model of reality is tied up in empirical, objective, verifiable facts. That doesn't mean it applies to absolutely everything. If I say uh, life is generally preferable to death, that doesn't mean that that is an objectively verifiable empirical fact. It may just be my foundation that I use for things. If your God doesn't interact with reality in a detectable way, then you cannot claim to have detected it. You must show a mechanism by which you have detected what appears to be the undetectable. There's a reason that courtrooms, uh, at least in most of the modern world, no longer accept spectral evidence um, of magic and things like that. Because when we're looking at a claim and we want evidence for that claim, we must demonstrate a connection between our proposed explanation of the facts and the facts that support that. Science doesn't make proclamations of certainty, not absolute certainty. I don't even think that it makes approximations to certainty. Science creates models that are the best representation of a construct that describe the available facts. It's important that people understand a couple of basic things about logical arguments and logical fallacies. The easiest way to look at it is to look at a simple syllogism that's constructed of two premises and you reach a conclusion. You have a major and minor premise and a connecting term, and that's how you say something like obvious, like 
Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal, that sort of thing. Fallacies come in a couple different forms. One of them are structural fallacies that get to the validity of the argument, the structure itself. It's content agnostic. Those are formal fallacies. A lot of them have names. There are informal fallacies, too, that get to whether or not the premises are structured in such a way that they can reliably be used in a, in a properly constructed. There's a difference between validity and soundness. Go look up validity versus soundness on Wikipedia. It's a decent start. Just every time you go to Wikipedia, make sure you go to the bottom and look to where it links you because you might find yourself on like the Winston philosophy page and in over your head if you haven't looked into any of this. And yet that's one of the best places to go to get information. So you might have some fallacies with names like post hoc ergo propter hoc, which just means after this, therefore, because of this. You can't say, hey, I had my breakfast and then I had diarrhea, therefore my breakfast caused diarrhea. It could have been something else. It's not just true that this one thing follows another, that that was the cause. Similarly, you might have something like an argumentum ad populum, which just means you're appealing to the popularity of the idea or what the masses think. And the truth is not impacted in any way by what people think or how strongly they are convinced of it or how long they've done it or how many of them there are. But a fallacy does not mean that the conclusion you've reached is false. That would be the fallacy fallacy to assert that something is false because it's fallacious. All it means is that you cannot reliably, um, you should not, be convinced that it's true because it does not follow from the facts or from the premises. And there are a number of different arguments for the existence of God, some of which are ones where they attempt to support it by evidence. Others, it's just, hey, it's a philosophical argument and we're going to look at a couple of premises. What you've heard many times from people are things like, oh, if there's a painting, we know there's a painter. Or arguments from design and teleological arguments and anthropic principles. And uh, the thing is, it almost doesn't matter in a logical argument if the premises are actually true as much as whether or not you accept that they're true. Because if you accept that the premises are true and the logic is valid and the, and the argument's valid in structure, and you reject the conclusion, you are irrational. You are unreasonable. You are in conflict with the basics of logical reasoning. So it'd be nice if we had true premises because a valid argument is one where true premises necessarily lead to a true conclusion. But at a minimum, if you accept the premises and reject the conclusion, you're in a position of being irrational or unreasonable. The same thing's true if you're using an invalid form. There's a number of different categories of arguments, but what we're talking about in general is I have a claim about something in reality, and it either matches up with the facts of reality or it doesn't. And it may match up, and I won't have any way to demonstrate it. But when we're evaluating the evidence for a claim, you have to evaluate the facts that seem to be consistent with your proposition. And you also have to account for the facts that seem to be in conflict with your proposition. Does the evidence support some alternative hypothesis? For example, if there is a God and he created grass, some people might look at the grass and say, Every blade of grass is proof of the creator. No, it's not. Because if there's not a God, or that's not the right God, if pixies created grass, or if evolution is the explanation for why we have grass, then the grass is evidence for each of those equally, which means it's evidence for none of them until you can demonstrate why it is connected to one and not the others. If you're accused of a crime and you wind up in a courtroom, Quite often they'll ask about, or they'll try to demonstrate that you have motive, means, and opportunity. 
And so if we were to evaluate God, and we'll probably get into definitions about God uh, a little bit later, but generally speaking, God is being accused of existing, and I'm finding God not guilty. Um, actually, I don't think the district attorney should bring the case anyway, because we haven't established that the case is worth trying. Because in order to have a hypothesis, it needs to be testable, which means it also needs to be falsifiable. There needs to be some way to demonstrate that it is wrong, at least hypothetically. You would need to show that God should be considered as a candidate explanation for whatever it is that you're trying to use God as a candidate explanation for. And why are you picking God as a candidate explanation over pixies or over evolution? Once you've demonstrated that God's a candidate explanation, you need to show that it is consistent with all of the available facts and not inconsistent with the facts that would seem to contravene it. You have to show that the preponderance of evidence is consistent with and makes your hypothesis not just more likely than some other, but more likely than not, more probable than not. And then you have an evidence-based conclusion. There are a number of things that people believe. Ghost stories, old wives' tales, the farmer's almanac. And all sorts of people believe that they have strong evidence for it because they go through a process of prioritizing evidence. If you think that the Bible or the Quran is the ultimate foundation of truth and that what's in there is going to lead you to truth or that it's more likely to be true than not, that will bias your ability to assess the information as to whether or not it's consistent with that. If I'm on trial for murder and they can't produce a body, they might still be able to convict me. If they can't produce a weapon, they might still be able to convict me. They could show that I have means, motive, and opportunity, and I might still be innocent, and they might not be able to convict me, because means, motive, and opportunity are only part of the evidence for this. When it comes to God, there's no demonstration that I'm aware of maybe we'll hear one, that God is a candidate explanation for anything. There is an assertion that God has, has the means to do whatever he wants by claiming that he's omnipotent or all-powerful or at least sufficiently powerful. But where's the demonstration that God exists and is all-powerful? So the means is an assertion that's unjustified as far as I can tell. The motive seems to largely be ignored. I don't know why any being, any God would create anything, certainly not anything inferior. Why would it create flawed things? And by making God spaceless and timeless, they're going to give him the opportunity. But these are assertions that aren't supported by evidence. You can make philosophical arguments. You can stay, keep things in, in, the, in the realm of abstractions. But when we're looking for objectively verifiable facts of reality, that are not just consistent with a God, but consistent with a particular God and no others, no other pixies, no other nothing, no evolutionary thing. I'm not aware of any evidence that truly counts for God. I'm aware of many things that people point to and say, this is evidence that is consistent with a God, but correlation with an idea does not demonstrate that there is in fact causation. It doesn't demonstrate that, oh, there's my time. See, I was watching my 10 minutes and I didn't hear James say a thing. In any case, I'll wrap up here with, I'm unaware of any objectively verifiable evidence for any God whatsoever. I'm interested to hear both a definition of a God and the objectively verifiable evidence for it. Thank you very much for that opening, Matt. And if you're watching at home, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. We have many more debates coming up. And with that, we're going to kick it over to Daniel for his opening as well. Thanks very much, Daniel. The floor is all yours. One thing, James, uh, the light doesn't need to be on. 
So glad you said that. Dark in the. I'm saying it doesn't need to be on. It does. Okay. Yeah. There it is. Okay. And how Ready is my volume? Good. Okay. It's bad. The debate today is whether Islam is true. We've divided the the debate into three sections or three parts. Is there good evidence for God? Is there any religion more compelling than Islam? And which is best for society, secular humanism or Islam? Debating these questions will allow us to answer the overarching question, is Islam true? First, is there good evidence for God? What kind of evidence is compelling evidence? When we ask, is there compelling evidence for God? We should also ask, compelling for whom? How do we decide what is or isn't compelling? It depends on the audience. If we were to ask 11th century Europeans if they found the existence of God compelling, virtually all of them would say yes. But if we ask 21st century Europeans, far fewer would say yes. So what's changed? Atheists claim people have just become smarter, more scientific, more in touch with reality. That's the atheist narrative. But I want to propose a competing narrative. Cognitive science says that human beings have natural intuitions, whether they're moral, religious, aesthetic, logical, or mathematical intuitions. Intuitions are mostly unconscious, and they're based on the feeling of compellingness rather than systematic proof. For example, people have the intuition that harming others for no reason is wrong. This is an intuition because people might not even have articulated this as a concrete belief and they have no logical justification for it, but they still strongly tend to accept it as true. Psychologists have shown that all children naturally develop this moral intuition earlier in life. Beyond moral intuitions, there's also aesthetic intuitions. Humans universally experience disgust at the thought of eating human flesh. There are also logical intuitions. We all intuitively accept the law of non-contradiction, that two uh, contradictory statements cannot both be true at the same time. And we also have mathematical intuitions, like five objects is more than one object. There are also intuitions about the world and history. For example, we all intuitively believe that there's an external world that persists even if we're not in it. We also intuitively believe that the past was real and our memories are based on that past reality. We also have natural intuitions about God. Most people in the world and in history believe in spirit beings. According to cognitive science, this belief is biologically rooted. Research shows that children as young as five across diverse cultures all express similar beliefs that the universe was created by the supernatural. This is the case even for children in cultures that don't affirm a creator God, like Japanese children. This shows that the intuition to believe that the universe was created by supernatural beings is inbuilt. People also naturally believe that the mind persists after bodily death. Belief in the afterlife is a biologically rooted intuition. Psychologists call this natural theology. So to recap, humans have many natural intuitions about what is true. When we rely on those intuitions, that is called intuitive thinking. A good way to think about intuitive thinking is like a tendency to find something plausible or true. If I tell you the world doesn't go away when you close your eyes, most people will tend to believe me, even if I don't present some elaborate argument. The idea just has this inherent plausibility because of our human psychology. Now, there is another mode of thinking which is called analytic thinking. 
Analytic thinking is different because it causes us to question our intuitions rather than just accept things because they feel compelling. We demand further evidence and justification. In other words, analytic thinking is about doubt. We doubt our intuitions and then we explore other possibilities. We gather evidence. We make inferences. We might intuitively feel that eating human flesh is disgusting, but is it actually wrong? Well, let's just gather data and evaluate arguments for each side. This is analytic thinking overcoming intuitive thinking. Both intuitive and analytic thinking are found in human beings, but they're balanced in different ways in different societies. Research shows that intuitive thinking is dominant in some societies and analytic thinking is dominant in others. The other important thing is that when you engage in more analytic thinking, you start doubting more and more of your intuitions. This is studied in dual process theory. People who have maximized their analytic thinking will doubt their religious, moral, and aesthetic intuitions. Only their strongest intuitions remain. For example, their intuitions about logic or about the external world. But for everything else, they demand empirical evidence. But there is no empirical evidence for these things. So when you maximize analytic thinking, people become more and more inclined to a reductionist view of the world defined by scientific materialism. And anything beyond that is doubted. Now let's bring it all back. When we have a debate about good evidence for God, what are our standards? Are we trying to meet the standards of a maximally analytic mode of thinking, the type of extreme analytic thinking of atheists? Why should we? Why should we just accept that standard of evidence as opposed to a more balanced type of cognition that doesn't nuke all our natural human intuitions? What atheists will want to claim here is that we should obviously prefer the maximally analytic mode of thinking. Why? Because that's the mode of thinking that's most likely to give us the truth. But is this true? Does maximizing doubt bring us closer to the truth? Why should we believe that? I would challenge atheists to justify this. Why should we adopt such extreme epistemic standards? In reality, a psychology that balances intuitive and analytic thinking is more suitable for recognizing truth. And this is actually an insight that we find within the history of philosophy and the work of Western philosophers like Ludwig Wittgenstein. Not all of reality can be reduced to empirical data points to be scrutinized through systematic analysis. The reality is we all experience, the reality we all experience is far richer than that. And insisting on maximum analytic thinking actually takes us further from fully seeing reality, like covering up one half of our binoculars. Furthermore, the insistence on maximal analytic thinking is nothing more than a recent product of cultural evolution. For most of history, human cognition was more balanced. So what changed? Analytic thinking become, became dominant not because it's more attuned to the truth or because it's more beneficial for humanity. Analytic extremism became dominant because of what we can call cognitive colonialism. To understand how this happened, consider society A that is analytic dominant versus society B that is intuitive dominant. Over time, both societies experience technological and economic growth, but society A experiences this faster. This allows society A to dominate society B. Society A then imposes analytic thinking on its newly acquired subjects by establishing an analytic-focused school system. In this way, analytic thinking spreads and dominates more and more societies until it dominates the entire globe. The societies with the most extreme emphasis on analytic thinking win out. That's modern history in a nutshell. Researchers like Joseph Heinrich have explained this history in books like The Secret of Our Success. Now, the fact that analytic thinking can accelerate technology and growth, that sounds like a great thing. 
But the big question is, just because analytic thinking excels at producing technology, does that mean that maximizing it is better suited to determine truth? I'm not claiming that analytic thinking has no connection to the truth. But again, when you maximize this type of thinking, that means that your analytic capacities start overshadowing intuitions about the world that are also very compelling. Throughout history, all peoples felt intuitively that there were moral, aesthetic, and religious truths, truths about life and purpose, and many of these truths were based on intuitions that were universally shared by all humanity. Now, if you told all these people that they have to reject their intuitions and adopt analytic extremism, which ultimately will bring into doubt all these other intuitions, most people would not accept that. But unfortunately, people don't have a choice. The analytic mode of cognition has been imposed by cognitive colonialism. Secular humanist powers have implemented all manner of social and educational programs over the course of the past 300 years to champion analytic thinking. Why? Because that's the type of thinking that maximizes economic growth. The more people are thinking analytically, the more they produce science and technology, which will increase GDP. Atheists want to tell the story that the debate between atheism and religion is about two sides making arguments against each other, and people decide which is more compelling. But there's another way to look at it. Atheists represent an extremist mode of thinking that results in maximizing GDP and military power. The reason that there are so many atheists today is not because the scientific worldview is inherently compelling. Rather, maximizing analytic thinking allows you to invent nukes and tanks. Most people historically disagreed with maximal analytic thinking, but they were wiped out. Social technological economic violence has changed the epistemology of people across the world. Prior to this, no one would have taken atheism seriously, but atheists fail to acknowledge this history. They just assume that analytic thinking should be maximized no matter what. The bias, this biases any debate on the existence of God. The theist is always at a disadvantage if he has to mold his arguments to satisfy a mind that's primed to reject anything non-empirical. Humans have strong natural intuitions about reality. We have the intuition that there's an external world, that our memories have truth content. There are intuitions that do that don't give us any more power to do science or produce technology, but that doesn't make them unreal. Intuitions about the existence of God are among the strongest intuitions humans have, and this intuition is supported by inferential reasoning and communal traditions. If an atheist says he doesn't find these things compelling, we should ask, where do you get your epistemic standards from? Why shouldn't we believe that those standards are unique to modern Western culture and have only emerged very recently in history, primarily because they maximize GDP? Why should we take those standards as arbiters of truth about God or anything else? Thank you very much, gentlemen. We'll now jump into the open dialogue. So this is for 40 minutes. We'll have open dialogue. If it gets to be too much and that there's too much speaking over each other, then I'll break it into two or one minute intervals. But let's give it a shot. Gentlemen, the floor is all yours. So that's an interesting diatribe on the problems of analytic and reasoning. Where was the evidence for God? That was, the, that was the entire first part was, is there evidence of God? And I didn't hear not only any objectively verifiable empirical evidence for God, I didn't even hear any intuitive evidence for God, just a lot about the value of intuition and how evidently as an atheist, I'm all about military power, which I generally despise despite having done eight years in the military, uh, and that's not consistent with my secular humanism, and nothing that I could view as evidence of God. No, the whole point was to question your standards. That wasn't that your, the subject of the debate. Hey, I didn't interrupt you when you Correct. called what I said a diatribe. Let's try to be civil here. 
I am I'm trying, trying to be civil. I'm then agreeing don't interrupt with you. me. <laughs> then well, please I don't, don't interrupt. Interruption is is don't interrupt me. uncivil. Okay. So as I was saying, the whole point of this opening is to question your standards of evidence. If you want to say that, well, there's no scientific evidence when we do experiments and open the microscope and look at in the beaker, we don't see God, then I can concede that. So what's the point of that point that your opening was about? My opening was to take the discussion to a higher level of what are our standards? What is our epistemology? You're assuming a atheistic epistemology that I don't accept and the most most people in history and even today don't accept. That so that's num that's point number 1 as opposed to as for evidence of intuitions that people believe in God. Uh we'll talk about it in the next part of the debate, but there's this is something that's established. There's a natural theology that is established within the cognitive science of religion that people have intuitions about spirit beings, they have intuitions about a purpose to creation, they have intuitions about there being an afterlife. These are all things that are established within the cognitive science of religion. Is that a pause for me? Yes. Cool. So I wanted to do a debate on Islam versus secular humanism and which one's better for the world, but Daniel didn't want that. And then James kept coming back to me with potential topics for a debate, and I pointed out various problems with them and everything else. And then finally, I gave up. And just the three different topics that he wanted over three hours is what I agreed to. And so I'm given a list of topics. And topic one is, is there evidence of God? I rest my case because he just said that the entire purpose of his opening was to question my epistemology. I am irrelevant, and my epistemology is irrelevant to whether or not there is evidence of God. And if you demand that the first hour be on, is there evidence for God, and you do not address that topic, and admit that instead you've decided to go with a different topic, you have defaulted, and I rest my case. No, it's the same exact topic. If you have a debate topic, Part of the debate is to analyze the topic and the, the assumptions that go into one position or another. I'm analyzing the assumptions that go into the first sentence or the second sentence that you had was that this kind of scientific analysis is the best route to truth. I am objecting to that and proposing an alternative. Well, how about you explain to us and justify why it's the best route to truth? Because the subject of the debate is, is there evidence of God? Yeah, how do we determine that? You're, you're asserting that it has to be scientific evidence. The subject of the debate is, is there evidence for God? My answer is no, and I talked about what sort of evidence I would accept or not accept. I didn't say anything at all about shutting down intuition. I didn't say that intuition should be sidelined or less important or, that it, has or that it has no I thought we were done interrupting. Or that it has no importance. I didn't do any of the things that he asserted. And not only did he not present any evidence of God for us to address, but he fully acknowledged that that was not the purpose of his opening statement. I rest my case. Is it where's the evidence that the external world exists? That's not the subject of the debate either. You, I want to know, like, your standards of evidence for God... Do they have any meaning outside of that particular question in the very specific way that you've defined it to, to set the debate up in your favor? Is there anything else that is scientifically verifiable, like the external world? 
yes. like the principle of non-contradiction. Please give me the Sorry. evidence, the objective, objectively verifiable evidence that the law of non-contradiction is true. That's not the subject of this debate either. And after being accused of setting this up so that it would be easy for me to win, after acknowledging he chose these topics that I did not want to address, and now it turns out that he also does not want to address, I don't know what to do. James? No, no, there's plenty of evidence. There's plenty of If you ask people Start for presenting. evidence, if you ask people for evidence of God, they will point to their sense that God exists. They will point to their sense that when they look at the world, they see it as being created by a supreme being for a purpose. When you ask people about any number of things that are not scientific, they will have a tendency to answer in specific ways. These are st studied within the cognitive science of religion and, and psychology generally. If you ask people for evidence of the external world or basic arith arithmetic propositions, there's a tendency to answer in consistent ways in a universal fashion. What this tells us is that the human mind has a certain structure, it works in a certain way, and we have to understand the human mind in order to ask questions about morality, religion, aesthetics, logic, mathematics, all of these science, right, empirical data, all of these things have to be understood with reference to human psychology. So it's not irrelevant to the debate. It's actually a core first step of being able to debate evidence for anything, let alone evidence for God. So what we just heard was that if you ask people, they'll tell you that they believe in a God. Some of them may even say they intuit it. I'm still asking and still waiting for a demonstration of evidence for God. That's evidence that people believe in God. And if you just said, hey, I want to debate whether or not people believe in God, I'd say, why would we do that? I clearly agree that people believe in God. I used to believe in God, but I didn't do it necessarily because of intuition, although some people might do it for intuitional reasons. Some people might think that they're doing it for good evidence reasons. But when I found out that I didn't have good evidence, and when I found out that intuitions could be wrong, and if you're going to have intuitions about, oh, I don't know, whether or not the restaurant's going to be busy, that's probably based on past experience and data that you're just using your gut to assess. And so what you're describing is potentially intuition there isn't actually intuition, but is based on data. But we don't have any data that I'm aware of for God. We don't have any evidence that I'm aware of for God. You haven't presented any, and that's the subject Int of the first hours of debate. Intuitions are evidence. Intuitions are evidence. Just because you don't accept them, that doesn't mean that they're not evidence. There are different types of intuitions. I didn't say all intuitions are equally compelling. There are some intuitions that are so compelling that no one has questioned them for most of human history, like the intuition that there is an external world, for example, or the intuition uh, regarding the law of non-contradiction, certain moral intuitions like it is wrong to harm people. People have universally had this intuition. Why? Because every moral system, every religion that we see has this principle in it, in it implicitly or explicitly, that it is wrong to harm people without reason. That is evidence of its truth in, insofar as the human mind is capable of accessing the truth. That's, that's the point. And the belief in God is also one of these very strong intuitions that human beings have from, that they develop from childhood. So that, that is evidence. You don't accept it as evidence. That's my point. Boy, have I got some surprises for you. Daniel seems to think that nobody's questioned reality. I don't evidently you've never heard of solipsism. 
And the for most of history dis- was. Are what you I interrupting said. me again? What's good for the goose? Solipsism, and the study of this within philosophy, is something that is robustly argued all over. It's it's almost argued more than whether or not atheists can be rocks or whether or not tacos are sandwiches. Solipsism is the issue of can we trust and do we know that the outside world that we think is the outside world that we experience, is it the real true world? And as far as I'm aware, there is no solution to the problem of hard solipsism. But when you say that people's intuitions about God count as evidence, as I was pointing out, whether you're going to have objectively verifiable facts or objectively verifiable empirical evidence or not, at a minimum, the evidence that you have that you demonstrate someone's intuition, if you want to claim that's evidence, you have to make a demonstration to show how that intuition is consistent with a specific God concept and excludes other God concepts and how we can demonstrate that it is probably correct. And you haven't done any of that. You've just asserted that people have intuitions about God and that we shouldn't dismiss them. I didn't say we should. Sorry. You've asserted from the beginning in your opening statement that the route, I think you use the word route, to understanding reality and truth is through this kind of scientific analytic investigation. What do you want? You asserted that. You asserted that. So why can't you just justify that? Why can't you tell us why we should accept that standard? Because the first hour of this debate is not, is Matt's epistemology sound? Is, is there evidence? Yes, it is. It, the no, whole debate. No, it's not. The whole debate is about who's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Meanwhile, what I said is that scientific inquiry is the most consistently reliable pathway to demonstrably understanding reality. I didn't say that intuition couldn't get you to the right answer. Intuitions need to be demonstrated in their reliability because the wise person, as Hume would teach us, proportions their confidence to the evidence. You can have intuitions and they might be right, but the way to be confident and the way for them to count as good evidence is to show that they are probably right. So asserting that people have intuitions doesn't make them evidence. It doesn't make them reliable. And it doesn't mean that people's intuitions about whether the God is a Christian God, a Scientologist God, a Hindu God, a Muslim God, or some other God that nobody's proposed as any demonstration that it's likely to be correct. And this hour of the debate is supposed to be about evidence of God. I still am waiting. So your standard of evidence takes out all moral claims, moral truths, I'll say, actually, because I do believe it is a moral truth that harming others for no reason is wrong. I I can't demonstrate that. I can't bring you peer-reviewed studies to establish that. I do believe that the law of non-contradiction is true. I can't bring you scientific evidence for that. I can't bring you I can't demonstrate that in a proof. I do believe that the external world exists. I cannot demonstrate that uh, through a proof. I can't bring you scientific evidence for that. All of those things and much more, basic mathematical truths, basic aesthetic truths, like eating human flesh is disgusting. That is a truth. And I will stand by that. But there's no scientific result that will say that that is, that is true. But it is true. That is reality. We all have these universal uh, truths that we abide by in understanding reality. But none of that has to do with scientific evidence. None of that has to do with having this kind of deductive proof. Yet it's still true. Yet it's still a reality. What the atheist does, uh, and, and in general, not just Matt, uh, the atheist says that, well, none of that is really real. 
And we don't need to talk about that. Let's just talk about what is scientific. But this is a drastic, violent uh, limitation on reality that the ma vast majority of humanity, not only today, but throughout history, doesn't share. We don't, people don't have this scientific reductionist view of reality. So if you go back to the beginning of my opening statement, not the Mitch McConnell joke, which was really good, by the way. Uh, but if you go back to the beginning where I was describing things, in addition to talking about the nature of evidence and everything else, I think I specifically pointed out that there are things where we're not going to be able to point to empirical evidence. And I think I used morality as an example for that. To so to suggest that I am tossing those things out is not remotely accurate. And I guess he just missed part of my opening. But my opening was about evidence of God, not about competing epistemologies. So I'm still waiting. Well, the difference is when it comes to morality, I'll stand and up and say, this is true. And it's not something that I can doubt. If I doubt it, I doubt my reality. Uh, but your position, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that morality is something that we can't have objectively verifiable facts about. Our positions are not the same on morality. My position is shared by the vast majority of, of human beings. Like, no one even questions that. That's people's reality. I doubt reality. Um, I doubt many things that I intuitively feel about reality. And yes, our view on morality is very different with something I'm sure we'll get to in a little while, which everybody is already aware of. When it comes to moral truths, or let's say the law of non-contradiction, identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle, the foundations of logical thinking are presuppositions. We can't demonstrate that they're true because you'd have to assume that they're true to try to prove they're false, which means they're not falsifiable. However, what we can do is demonstrate that they consistently seem to be inviolate. That means that there doesn't seem to be anything that breaks those rules. But we don't have an exhaustive understanding of the universe. And so beginning as a practical, necessary assumption to say, I would like to reason, these are the foundations of reason that I'm going to begin with, identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle, and they continually consistently demonstrate to be true and reliable and have never been shown to not be, it is a reasonable intuition or inference or presupposition that we should continue to use them until such time as somebody demonstrates, hey, we found a problem with identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle, and now you have to rethink whether or not you can use them as a foundation. But until then, it's like, you know what? I rolled a dice and I rolled it over and over again, and I calculated the probabilities, and this dice consistently conforms to the reliabilities. But I, there, it might be the case that angels are ticking the number that shows up on the dice every single time, and they're just doing it consistent with the probabilities that I understand. And any day now, that angel could just turn it to something else. So I better not, I, I don't have any foundation for probability. Bullshit. We have loads of foundation for probabilities. We have loads of reason to think that something is true. What we don't have a, a way to demonstrate is that it's impossible for it to be otherwise. Yeah, so how would you falsify the principle of non-contradiction? I just asserted, I just, just literally said you cannot falsify. And how is it false? So it's not up to be falsifiable. Correct. So why do you say it seems to work as if there's going to be a future point where it's not going to work and therefore it will be falsified? Am I speaking English? I, 
I said these things are unfalsifiable. They are presuppositions that continually demonstrate that they are true. There's no reason to think that they could be violated in the future, but you can't demonstrate that. And so it is a presupposition. I am as convinced as I can be of anything that the foundations of logic are reasonable, but you can't prove it. This is, this is the foundational then problem of logic. Because, then why do you accept it? Because, oh my gosh. If I pick up a pen and I try and write with it, and it writes every time I pick it up and write with it, then I'm going to view that pen as reliable right up until it stops being reliable. That's the same thing for identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle. Those things have continue to demonstrate that they seem to be. And it's they not seem an empirical case, thing. And they, you, it's not an empirical thing. How can you demonstrate something that's non-empirical? I didn't say. How can you demonstrate that harming someone is wrong? Like, is there going to be a future point where we discover, oh, actually harming people for no reason is not wrong. It's actually good. It's not an empirical thing. Like you're making a category mistake. Like these are non-empirical things, but you're applying this empirical standard of falsifiability to everything. This is just a basic category mistake. So everybody pay attention to what's happening. <laughs> this grandstanding is grandstanding. ludicrous. Are you speaking English? <laughs> I'm sorry. People understand me. Rewind it. I literally have you don't to say need the a same thing. Just twice. answer the question. Your principle of falsifiability. You don't get to determine. You don't get to decide what question I answer question. and what question I don't yeah, I answer. Do. Yeah, and I what's do. actually happening doing it right here, now. It, you can, but you're an ass. What's oh. happening right Yes, you are. Oh, you're hurting my feelings. I know. You're breaking my heart. Wait till we get to the other problems. <laughs> so, uh, so what's happening here is I explained it, and then I explained it again. And when he didn't have an answer, he instead tried to shift the topic to is harming people wrong? Are we going to find out that someday harming people is not wrong? And then he shifted that topic to is harming people for no reason wrong when that's not the subject of this debate. It is not the subject of this hour debate, and it is not what we were talking about. Are you going to be able to stay on topic and eventually present some evidence of God, or are you going to keep grandstanding and deflecting and pulling up topics that we weren't talking about? Okay. So if you apply the standard of falsifiability that's exactly what's in question that's what the whole opening was about questioning that standard of scientific evidence is the arbiter of truth you haven't addressed that at all you just grandstand to the audience and then you keep saying that well we don't have evidence for god yes i know that's the question that is the debate topic but we're trying to analyze what does evidence actually mean what are standards of evidence that are required I say that intuitions that human beings have universally from childhood are evidence for God insofar as we can understand truth, insofar as we can understand reality. That is evidence. You don't accept that as evidence. And you say that, well, this is not objectively verifiable. And I ask you, why is it not objectively verifiable? You say, well, this is not something that's empirical or scientific. Why would we ever accept this? And then I say, well, what about all these other things that you accept, that you seemingly accept, but they don't have that standard of proof, yet you accept them? Do you accept that there's an external world? Do you accept that harming someone for no reason is wrong? Do you accept that even though you don't have any empirical proof? So why won't you accept that God exists? So I was just accused of saying, why would we accept it if it's not empirical? When I just finished explaining that identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle are not only not falsifiable, but are an example of the thing I highlighted at the beginning of my opening about things that are not 
based on empirical evidence. I didn't address the question at all about whether or not I think there's an objective world that we're experiencing. So Daniel is arguing against a fictional straw man of me and still presenting no evidence of God. You accept lo law of non-contradiction? Yes. Why? Where's the where's the empirical because, evidence? Because where's the empirical evidence? As I've explained now four times. It's something I, that's not empirical. That's my point. Correct. Correct. So then there can't be any empirical evidence for it. Yet you accept I it. Didn't, I didn't say there couldn't be any empirical evidence for it, but that's not why How I accept could, it. What, what could be not, what are you going to let me answer or are you going to talk over me again? I explained why I accepted it because it continually demonstrates its reliability. And I also pointed out that I accepted initially as a presupposition because there is no way to demonstrate identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle are always true, but there is a way to show that they are true in every example that we can come up with. You can do this with a simple Venn diagram to show that A, not A, and everything is either A or not A, and every, nothing is both A and not A. This is what a single Venn diagram with a single circle demonstrates. Come up with an example that suggests or shows that identity, non-contradiction, or excluded middle aren't true, come up with an example where they're not true, and I'll stop believing them, I, kind of, I'll stop believing that they are going to continue to be reliable because now you'll have demonstrated that there's a circumstance where they're not reliable. But much like the pen, until there's a demonstration that this is going to not be reliable at some point, which for pens we know, but until that time, I'm, I'm justified in continuing to use logic as a presupposition that continues to demonstrate its viability and its reliability. I said nothing at all about why should we believe something if it's not empirical. I did not, I did not say in, at any point that science is the only way to knowledge and understanding. What I said is it's the most consistently reliable, demonstrable pathway to an accurate model of reality. If you're not going to address what I actually said, could you finally present some evidence of God? You're contradicting yourself. You keep saying that, well, this is non-empirical. The law of non-contradiction is non-empirical, but you're still waiting for um, a demonstration that can happen later in time, meaning an empirical event. This is a contradiction in what you're saying. We can get more specific with the issue of harm. Is harming someone for no reason wrong? That is something, are you waiting for a future event? Can you explain like something that could happen or when it could be demonstrated that harming someone for no reason is morally right? So again, on the law of non-contradiction, when I say that there's not empirical proof, I'm saying there's no empirical proof that those things will always be true. There's no way to demonstrate that. There's no way to demonstrate currently a circumstance under which those would be false. But I don't have complete knowledge of the universe and wouldn't pretend to. And so my reliance on them is contingent on the fact that they continue to demonstrate that they work. And as soon as they stop, then my confidence in them will be diminished. That's how confidence works. Right now, identity, non-contradiction, excluded middle, consistently demonstrate in all circumstances and in all conceivable circumstances this. I'm not sitting around waiting for somebody to demonstrate that they're not going to work sometime. I don't have any good reason to think that's likely to ever happen. I can't even imagine the circumstance. And so far, nobody else has been able to imagine circumstances under which that's the case. I'm not saying I believe them, but that uh, on, on, as they are presuppositions, 
But that doesn't mean that there aren't empirical facts that are consistent with them. See, then how are they non-empirical? C, comma, they, there is not, as I just explained a minute ago, there's not an empirical way to demonstrate that they could be false. But there are empirical ways to demonstrate that they are currently reliable. Every piece of data we ever evaluate is a constant demonstration of identity, non-contradiction, and excluded middle. Everything, the fact that I'm me and you're you and I'm not you and you're not me, all of those pieces of empirical information are evaluated within the realm of logic. And they continue to demonstrate that the logic, the foundations of logic, lead us to accurate models of reality. That's all that they have to be. There's nothing about that that says they're not related to the empirical world. Of course they are. Categorization, this is what set theory is. A isn't just a letter. It represents a set of things. It could be the set of empirical things. It could be the set of empirical things that are blue, green, and come out on Thursday. I don't know what that is, but somebody in Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon's got something like that. The empirical facts demonstrate the reliability of that, but it also can be shown as an abstraction, which is why I pointed out a Venn diagram. Well, can you answer the and moral? And it's still not evidence of God. The moral claim. The moral yeah. claim is irrelevant to this hour of the debate. I'm still waiting. How for is that irrelevant? You just bloviated about the law of non-contradiction. Explain to us this moral principle of harming others for no reason is wrong. Presumably, you, you accept that. Give me the empirical evidence or the objective, objectively verifiable fact that that's the case. Like when you talk about everything in uh, nature demonstrates the law of non-contradiction, that sounds like a lot of theists. Everything in nature demonstrates that God exists. You have a certain intuition, a logical intuition about the law of non-contradiction. And that's why you use terms like, oh, it works. You know, I have confidence in it. My confidence is not diminished. You're expressing an intuition uh, which is, as I defined, a tendency to find something compelling. That's all you're expressing. You're just trying to fit it into this mold of empiricism. But you contradict yourself. At first you say that it's non-falsifiable, it's non-empirical, and then you still have this uh, standard of falsifiability for non-contradiction. But please answer this question. Will we ever determine in the future that harming others for no reason uh, it can be correct. So this is a demonstration of what happens when you don't listen and when you have a flawed epistemology, because I was just told that because I bloviated about the laws of non-contradiction, identity, and excluded middle, that this required me to answer or perhaps bloviate about his other irrelevant question that is also not about the evidence of God and you sure are wrong. I don't have that requirement in this particular debate. Yeah, you can dodge it. Dodge it. No, no problem. Okay. So external At least world. when I dodge external. it, I'm not constantly dodging the subject of the actual no, the debate. the subject is evidence. The no, subject sir, the is subject evidence is and evidence epistemology. God, it's literally not, in the title. The subject is evidence for God. God. What is our it standard is not, of evidence? It is not. If you don't understand the debate, if you don't understand okay the debate, you don't understand that. I That's don't understand the debate. Literally, evidence, epistemology, is the you know core what? of the debate. Whatever. Evidence and epistemology is the I'm, core I, of the debate. I rest my case. I yeah, rested, you rested it a long ago. time ago. You rested a long keep, time ago. Keep telling me I don't understand the debate that you picked in late. That's what you keep telling me that I don't understand. Yeah, so I, this is the whole debate is about evidence and epistemology. I gave evidence, you just don't accept it. So the question becomes why don't you accept it? And you're not able to justify why you accept certain things. 
on the basis of not having any kind of scientific evidence behind that. You said you accept the lo certain laws of logic, you accept certain moral principles, you accept that the external world exists, you accept those things without any kind of empirical evidence. So that says that you're either being inconsistent with your standard of evidence, I mean, that's what it shows. You're inconsistent with your standard of evidence. Explain how you are consistent when there are things that you do accept without any empirical evidence, but you, you're you accusing me of claiming God exists without empirical evidence. When I'm saying that, that's not relevant to uh, establishing that God exists and that God is a part of reality. So now I've been accused of another thing that's not true, which is not explaining why I didn't accept his claim about uh, intuitive evidence for God. And I think I specifically said that it had to do with whether or not that evidence is consistent with facts and whether or not it excludes other potential hypotheses. This is how we tell whether or not something is evidence for a proposition, because right now, if somebody has an intuitive notion about a God, well, that's evidence that maybe th that could be evidence that there's a God. It could be evidence that they're delusional. And so until you come up with a methodology to distinguish between those two, you don't get to declare that their intuition is in fact evidence for or of or from or a, a God, because thoughts about a God don't in any way demonstrate that a God is real. You have to draw. I don't care if it's intuitive. I didn't say you didn't present empirical evidence. I said you haven't presented any evidence. Even with intuitive evidence, in order to show that intuitive evidence for a God exists or is is actually evidence for that God, you have to show that it excludes competing hypotheses, including this person is wrong or delusional. That is what evidence for a proposition is, whether it's empirical, intuitive, or magic. Like if it's a, an intuition that there are pink elephants in this room with us, and it's just me who has that intuition, yeah, you have to show that I'm not delusional. But if it's an intuition that everyone is share is sharing on the basis of biology and natural psychology, that's something else entirely. And when we look at uh, cognitive science of religion specifically, it's a, it's a massive field with so much peer-reviewed literature and books that have been published. They show that just like people have intuitions about morality, just like people have intuitions about the law of non-contradiction, just like people have intuitions about aesthetics and certain aesthetic principles, they have theological intuitions about an afterlife. That's why we see so many cultures independently have this idea that after we die, our mind persists. That is something biological, it's part of human psychology. The idea that the universe has been created for a purpose, specifically to benefit mankind. This is an idea found in one form or another in the vast majority of all human religions. Did they, how, if religions are just something that people made up uh, in, in their villages, how are, how are all of these people across the world at different times and places coming up with the same exact kind of theology? The belief in God, the belief as, in God as a creator and monotheism, this is something that is shared within so many different religions. They come to the same conclusion independently of each other. What cognitive scientists of religion say is that this is because it's biologically rooted. So they do surveys of different cultures, they do uh, childhood developmental studies, and they survey children on what they actually believe prior to becoming socialized within a particular social milieu, and they identify why I refer to in the presentation as a natural theology. There are certain uh, belief, the belief that if you are a bad person and you harm others and you take advantage of others, the universe is somehow going to punish you for that. And if you're a good person, you're a charitable, charitable person, the universe will, will benefit you. 
that is something that is an intuition that's shared universally across all different cultures and religions. So these are things that need to be investigated. They need to be taken into account. It's not a delusion. Someone's just delusionally thinking, oh, there might be, you know, um, you know, pink elephants in this room. That's strawmanning the intuitive position. So it's simply not true that all people across all times have come to the same conclusions or the same intuitions about gods or an afterlife. Not only is there a good example in the the people of the Paraha and the Amazon that have no had no God concept until somebody decided to jump in and present them with one, but the various notions about things differ, which is how we ended up with thousands of different religions, with thousands of different denominations. And the bigger problem here, this is one of the reasons why the world shifted to what was the the phrase that you used the the cultural. Sorry, what's that? Cognitive colonialism. Cognitive colonialism. Basically, his view of why we've shifted to a focus that is more on empirical evidence and analytic thinking. And the, reason, the real reason that happened, it wasn't some atheist cabal, because even though I would like to live in, live in a pod and do drugs and play video games, uh, not all atheists share that, that goal of mine. But amongst people, there are competing ideas, competing intuitions about a god. There's a reason why religions come in conflict, because they have competing intuitions about a god and no way to demonstrate which, if any of them, are right. And that is why we began to rely more on analytical thinking and assessing data to say, you know what, we can find out what's right on this, on this, we can't really do it on this, we can do it on this and this, but we can't really do it on this. And you guys who want to rely on intuition about something that you think is important, which the rest of us don't think actually impacts our lives, you'd need to make a demonstration. I agree, if there is a God, that's one of the most important questions ever, which is why I've spent my life addressing it, both as a Christian and as an atheist. Um, but whether or not there's a God is a big enough question that if you simply relied on intuition, you might end up in the wrong religion. And so if there is in fact some God, and he's going to judge you, which some of the religions say, based on whether or not you accept that God versus a competing God, then it is that God's responsibility to provide sufficient evidentiary warrant for accepting its existence. And if that comes in the form of intuition, that's fine, but it has to be demonstrably reliable. That's the problem of God. And it's the problem of relying on intuition. And it's the reason why in an hour-long discussion about evidence of God, I'm the only one that actually talked about and addressed all aspects of that Topic. Whether or not it's true that harming people for no reason is wrong, uh, whether that's true or not, that also has a major impact on human life. It has a huge impact on human society and politics. Uh, where's the demonstrable proof of that? Where Should've is the scientific the evidence? Where is? Why can't you answer? You accept you it. You picked the debate topic, not me. Who is this clown laughing? <laughs> like You don't need to laugh at everything he says. Look, show me, the show me the de demonstrable proof of those kinds of things within morality, law of non-contradiction, logic, all of these other things that you take and you accept without objectively verifiable facts, show me that that is a correct standard to use. If you can't demonstrate that, then why do you have this standard of evidence that you apply just to the question of God? That is inconsistent. Furthermore, the Amazon, uh, Amazonian group that you mentioned they do believe in spirit beings. They do believe in an afterlife. 
So that is shared universally amongst people, even in the depths of the Amazon. Why? Because it is biologically rooted. And if you want to go and disagree with the cognitive scientists of religion, go ahead, write a peer-reviewed paper about it. But this kind of uh, new atheist nonsense is old hat, old news. It's been debunked uh, decades ago, but you're just repeating it. So I want to see demonstration of these other things that you accept as being true, as being correct, that you accept. They're also very important for human society, whether morality, whether there's any kind of moral truth, whether there's an external world. Do you think that has something to, uh, that is a big part of our understanding of reality? Of course it is. Of course, morality is a big part of our understanding of the, uh, of reality. What about our memories? How do we know for sure? Can you demonstrate to me that the entire universe wasn't created five minutes ago and all of our memories of the past were implanted in us? How Can you demonstrate that scientifically? Is there any objectively verifiable fact that can prove that it wasn't? Our memories are pretty important, right? So show me any kind of consistent standard of proof, standard of evidence that you're applying to God. Show where it applies in these other very critical human domains. Asked and answered. I did it at the beginning. I talked about the standards nope. of evidence and how it applies to a bunch of different claims. Um, this debate is not, hey, Matt, justify everything that I think you believe, which, by the way, everything you think I believe isn't necessarily what I believe. But if you're interested on my personal YouTube account, I just did a video about whether or not the five-minute universe hypothesis is true. If you'd have picked that as a debate topic, we could have maybe done that. But I've already done it, and I've already addressed this first hour's topic. I have nothing further to add on whether or not there's evidence of God when nothing's been presented. Yeah, I mean, this is um, unexplained. You accept many things as true, uh, or you accept them as just working, or it seems to work, but basically you're saying that you feel that it's compelling. You you have that intuition. That's not what that I'm saying, basically true. or otherwise. That's it is not an accurate representation. No, it is. Uh, no, it's no, not. I specifically okay, back pointed out how We're to back test. to interruption. We're back to interruption. Okay, if you're just going to not tell the truth about what I literally said, people can rewind. It's fine. No, no, you people said something. I'm fine. interpreting what you said. Well, I'm interpreting what you said. Your interpretation with yes, your flawed <laughs> epistemology. Yeah. What they need yeah, is what no, I actually said. The debate is about said. is there evidence for God, not epistemology. There. The debate was yeah. is That's, there evidence, evidence for God? Evidence is epistemology. You picked you fool. it. You can derp all you want. This is your fault, not yeah. mine. Yeah, derp all you want. So. Again, this brings us to the next section of our debate. We're going to have a five-minute intermission. So, folks, if you'd like to use the restroom, we're going to have a five-minute intervent uh, intervention. intervention. And then we'll we be back in just five minutes. See you then. Thanks so much. What? Hey folks, if you're watching at home, want to let you know first, if you haven't yet hit that subscribe button as we have many more debates coming up, you don't want to miss them. So hit that subscribe button right now, as well as if you didn't know, modern day debate debate con is happening this Saturday, or I should say Saturday, November 4th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss it. Tickets are linked in the description box below already. And we'll be back after this five-minute intermission. All right, folks, thanks so much. We're back. We're going to jump to the next section of the three sections total. The second section that we're about to start is on whether or not Islam is true. Thanks very much, Matt. The floor is all yours.
Um, welcome back to Matt needs to justify his beliefs uh, on everything, even though that's not the debate topic, which Daniel presented as, is there any religion more compelling than Islam? And because that was the debate topic that I was presented with, that's what I prepared for. It's a silly topic that is absolutely ridiculous and irrelevant, because to say, is there any religion that is more compelling than Islam doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not it's true. It's like saying, is there any racist more awful than Jim Bob or any fable more compelling than the boy who cried wolf or any Tyler Perry Medea movie more enjoyable than, well, none of them. But I had to accept this particular. Oh, yeah. Thanks for, inter thanks for interrupting the opening. Good job. Uh, I had to accept this debate or this portion of the debate, despite the fact that it's pretty silly, because all I care about personally is whether or not something is true or whether or not we have good reason to believe that it's true. That's, you know, he'd like to make the whole debate about, you know, is Islam true? But this one he called, is there any religion more compelling than Islam? Now, to be fair, I still do my homework. And so I went out and did some research, both on a number of different definitions of compelling so that I could potentially address uh, other things. I may not have gotten them all, but um, dictionary definitions of compelling. And by the way, I'm not citing dictionaries as authority on anything other than describing usage, but evoking interest, attention, or admiration in a powerful, irresistible way is one definition for compelling. Not able to be refuted. Inspiring conviction is another one. Now, on the front of evoking interest, attention, Islam's done a really good job of evoking interest and attention in a number of different ways. Some not as good as others. Some definitely bad press. Um, Christianity has also in inspired quite a bit of uh, interest and attention. Atheism, secular humanism, to some extent, is starting to inspire a little more than it used to. But that's really kind of, as he mentioned in the last hour, this issue of compellingness is ultimately subjective. I'm glad he said that because I was getting ready to say it. And it's one of the reasons why this, this hour of the debate's kind of like your, your refreshing gap, because ultimately a good chunk of it's going to come down to subjective opinions. There are, though, some facts that we can look at to try to figure out if there's any religion more compelling than Islam. Well, if we just look at statistics on practitioners, Christianity is the most popular religion on the planet currently based on a 2010 Pew study. That could change any minute. At about 2.3 billion, or 31% of the population, Islam is second with about 25%, 24.9% in the last day, but give it, it's probably increasing a little bit uh, at 1.97 billion. And then secular, non-religious, agnostic, atheist is in third. I'm sorry, Hindus, Buddhist, Chinese traditional religion, ethnic religions, African traditional religions, Sikhism, Spiritism, Judaism, Judaism Baha, Jainism, Shinto, Kaidai, Zoroastrianism, Tenrikyo, I didn't know what that is, animism, neo-paganism, Unitarian Universalism, Rastafarianism, they're the only ones that were listed, but secularism comes in third. Now, by the way, I want to make sure I'm honest about this. That third category of the nuns, the N-O-N-E nuns, not the N-U-N nuns, is about um, number of adherents, not to an idea, but to that label. It doesn't mean they're all secular humanists. It doesn't mean they're all atheists. It doesn't mean they're all agnostics or free thinkers. And so if we were to judge compellingness by whether or not 
or by the number of adherents, then no, there's at least one religion that is more compelling than Islam on that front, and that's Christianity. It has more adherents. That could change, and it could change tomorrow. It could change when the, the, the 2020 Pew study for the same thing hasn't been released yet, and it's 2023. It takes them years to assess this data. When it comes out, Islam could be number one, which doesn't tell us anything at all about whether or not it's true or how compelling it is. It just tells us how many people have been, become convinced as a percentage of the population. It could also be the case that the nuns take the number one spot, but let's be honest, that's, that's probably not going to happen right away. Um, what it does mean, though, is that if Islam represents 25% of the population, at least 75% found some other religion or some other view about religion more compelling than Islam. So you don't have to just compare number one to number two. You have to compare where you are to everything else. And so it's not that there's any necessary, it's not like Baha'i is more compelling than Islam, but it's more compelling to some people than Islam. And there's a lot more people who are compelled by something else than are compelled by Islam. What about another definition of compelling? Like controlling. Like I'm going to compel you to pray five times a day or wear a particular outfit or not to leave the house without somebody else in your company or not to do this or do that or not to have sex with someone of the same gender or not to seek equality on those fronts. Well, I don't know if Islam is the most compelling on that front. I don't think that's what Daniel had in mind, but I don't know because he hasn't, he'll get to give his presentation in just a minute. We don't know if that's what he was thinking about, but I had to go through the various definitions of compelling. But just so that I'm not here to throw shade at every other religion, secular humanism was originally founded as a religion. The first humanist manifesto presented the case for secular humanism as a religion. And while it is definitely not more compelling on the two grounds that I just presented, I find it more personally compelling and so do other people. And my personal view is that it should be more compelling to everyone. And my reasons for that, some of which we'll get into in the, in the third part when I give a more robust def, or a defense of secular humanism as a good for the world, is that secular humanism adheres to a few very basic principles. Individual autonomy, the right to steer your own ship, that sort of freedom, liberty, that, that's key. But also, it holds that whether or not there is a God or whether or not some other religion is right about something, that we seem to be stuck here on this planet and we have problems and conflicts and we need to find ways to resolve them. And since I can't point to my God and say, this solves the problem unless you also happen to accept my God. By the way, I don't have a God. I'm using this as an example. Somebody's going to cut that out and put it up on YouTube. Oh, Matt's talking about his God again. Um, you can't do that because. We don't have an objective way to determine whether Daniel's version of Allah is correct or Isa, the guy I debated a week or so ago, whether his version of Allah is correct. And that's just within Islam. When we also take a look outside of Christianity, there's no, there's no ready solution to those. And so what secular humanism does is it doesn't say those are wrong. It says we can't appeal to those. We're going to have to fix our problems on our own. But secular humanism has at its foundation the betterment of human existence. That's the goal. Find, not to declare what are, but to define, but to find the best, most reliable methods of understanding the nature of reality and coming up with solutions to our problems. We don't get to say, well, my God said we're doing this, so we're doing this, because that just doesn't work. We know 
from the empirical evidence over history and conflicts between people asserting their religious authority over others, that that's not a good method of solving problems. Religions solved their problems by conquest, by conversion. And secular humanism seeks to solve our conflicts by data, debate, and discussion. That's the foundation of humanism. If the goal within humanism is to come up with a world that is better for human beings, then any idea from any religion that can demonstrate that it is in fact better for human beings, that idea gets rolled into secular humanism. If it turns, well, it gets rolled into humanism because if it turns out that somebody can actually demonstrate that following a particular God is better for human beings, then it would be a part of humanism and just no longer be secular because you're going to be adhering to a God. That's the foundation and the focus. Humanism focuses on humans. Islam focuses on God. And while God may have the best interests of humans in mind, that would need to be demonstrated in order to declare that it's better for humans. Otherwise, it could just be that God has God's best interests in mind, or that what we have is a situation where we don't have a God, but we have a lot of people making declarations about what that God thinks and what that God wants for the world. And so if secular humanism says, let's work together, to find the best information and the best ways to address that information so that we can share the best world possible, even if we never get there. I'm not, I'm not saying we're going to get to utopia. Oh, if secular humanism just takes over, we'll all be in utopia. No, it's ridiculous. But the problem is, is we don't have good data to compare fully, which we'll get to in the third part, because there's not a secular humanist nation and never has been. And so we don't know for sure how a nation would be like that. But that's for the third part. With regard to compelling... I think if you genuinely care about human beings, then a religion founded on human beings as its, and the betterment of human beings as its focus and goal, that is willing to accept ideas wherever they come from that are demonstrably good for humans, should be pretty damn compelling. Thanks for that opening, Matt. We're going to kick it over to Daniel for his opening for this section, in particular on Islam, whether or not there's more evidence for Islam compared to other religions. Daniel, the floor is yours for 10 minutes as well. Thanks for being with us. When we evaluate a complex system, uh, a complex belief system, whether it be humanism, communism, Islam, Christianity, it's never a simple proof that can be provided to show that it's true. We usually look at compelling points in favor of that belief system and then look at any potential deal breakers. We weigh all the compelling points against the deal breakers in order to come to an overall conclusion about its validity. In this part of the debate, atheists have to pretend that they're open to accepting a religion. So which religion is most compelling? Atheists commonly argue that all religions are equally compelling. What they mean by this is that all religions are equally false. This is because religions make claims that cannot be proven scientifically, and it's assumed that claims which cannot be proven scientifically are not compelling. For example, the Islamic claim that one god exists is no more compelling than the claim that Zeus or Hercules exist. But this is not true. Humans naturally find certain theologies more compelling than others, and this is because of natural intuitions that all humans have. There are three natural intuitions to consider. First is what psychologists call intuitions about spirit beings. Every society in history believed in some form of spirit beings, like angels, ghosts, or gods. Brain scans reveal that such belief is associated with the prefrontal cortex. Spirit beings are conceptualized as possessing minds, but lack ordinary bodies made of matter. 
Because spirit beings lack material bodies, they're considered invisible or exist in a hidden realm. Because people have an intuition that spirit beings exist, they're inclined to believe in things like angels, demons, and ghosts. By contrast, people are not inclined to believe in a flying spaghetti monster. This is because a spaghetti monster has a material body. Atheists know that humans have trouble believing in, in such a creature, and this is why they misrepresent religious beliefs as equivalent to belief in the flying spaghetti monster. This is a straw man. Second, there are intuitions that psychologists call teleological intuitions. Studies reveal that young children believe that certain things like cars and spoons are made by human beings, but natural things like animals, plants, and the sun are not made by human beings. The interesting thing is that children believe that these natural entities were made with a purpose by non-human agents like God. In other words, human intuitions support the idea that spirits or gods create natural entities like animals, rivers, and humans themselves. This idea is found in religions across the world. Third, humans have intuitions about causation. Humans find simpler causal explanations more compelling than complex causal explanations. This is Occam's razor. The ideal is causal explanations that assume only one cause. Now, when you combine these three intuitions, the result is people believe that spirit beings exist, spirit beings have created natural entities for a purpose, and ultimately there is one spirit being who has caused all things to come into existence for a purpose. This is the natural intuitive basis for belief in one supreme spirit being or creator God, in other words, monotheism. Since it's supported by so many natural intuitions, monotheism is very compelling for human beings. Surveys prove this. 80 to 90% of people endorse the belief in a singular all-powerful creator, God. What's surprising is that even 60% or more of Buddhists in the world believe in a creator God, despite the fact that Buddhism does not have this idea in its theology. The natural intuition is so strong, it even overcomes Buddhist theology. Most of the 10 to 20% of people who don't believe in a creator are actually atheists or agnostics. So the idea of an all-powerful creator is the dominant idea across all these independent religions and cultures around the world. This is due to biologically rooted human psychology. In Islamic terms, we call this the fitrah. Islam is more compelling than other religions because it centers on pure monotheism. This differentiates it from other religions, many of which also endorse the idea of a creator God, but blend it with polytheism. For example, the Christian notion of the Trinity mixes monotheism with polytheism. Another example is Judaism. Certain passages in the Hebrew Bible are strictly monotheistic, others are polytheistic. Also, Hinduism has a monotheistic strand which holds that there is one ultimate God who reveals himself in the form of many deities like Vishnu and Shiva, Hindu texts also contain many polytheistic passages. Now, moving beyond theology, religions usually claim to have founders who lived in the distant past and had access to supernatural knowledge. For example, Zoroaster had access to supernatural knowledge and founded Zoroastrianism. Similarly, Moses founded Judaism, Buddha founded Buddhism, Muhammad founded Islam, and so on. Religions further claim that they've preserved the teachings of their founders without fundamental alteration into the present. Given this claim, a religious tradition would be discredited if it's discovered that its present-day teachings cannot be traced back to its founder. This creates a problem. History shows that religions usually change significantly over time due to social, technological, and political change. 
This means that in most cases, a religion's core scriptures and doctrines have changed over time and cannot be traced to its founders, at least not in any historical verifi historically verifiable way. For example, historical investigation demonstrates that basic Christian doctrines like the Trinity cannot be traced back to Jesus. Similarly, when it comes to figures like Zoroaster, Moses, and perhaps even Buddha, it cannot be independently verified that these figures have ever even existed. As a result, basic Zoroastrian, Jewish, and Buddhist texts or doctrines cannot be traced to these founders. But Islam is unique in that its basic scripture and doctrines can be traced back to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu this is something acknowledged even by non-Muslim academics. Rock inscriptions and 7th century non-Muslim sources confirm that the Prophet ﷺ actually existed. Furthermore, radiocarbon dating has demonstrated that the Quran we read today can be traced back to his lifetime. There is also no doubt that basic Islamic practices and doctrine can be traced back to the Prophet ﷺ because they're mentioned in the Quran or in inscriptions or in 7th century non-Muslim sources, practices like ritual prayer, fasting, zakat, pilgrimage, or beliefs like belief in one God, his prophets, his angels, heaven, hell, a final day of judgment. All these core practices and doctrines can be objectively traced to the 7th century. Now, to be clear, the fact that a religion's teachings have been preserved does not, in and of itself, prove the truth of that religion. Nonetheless, if a religion's teachings have constantly changed over time, this destroys the credibility of that religion. For example, it's hard to be a Jew or a Christian once you realize that basic Jewish and Christian doctrines and rituals cannot be objectively traced back to Moses and Jesus. Of all the major religions, Islam has preserved its teachings best, and this contributes to its unique compellingness. Another critical factor, every religion ascribes amazing and miraculous acts to its founding figures. And this is because the miracles of a founder make his message more compelling. Amazing acts are evidence or of support from God or supernatural forces. Now consider the Prophet Muhammad Muhammad claimed that he was God's messenger to all of mankind, that his task was to turn mankind to monotheism and to bring them God's final message. Suppose that after Muhammad وسلم, claimed all this, he only won two or three followers and th then died virtually unknown in the desert. Were this the case, his message would be far, far less compelling. But in reality, he proceeded to perform many amazing acts that can be historically verified, wh whether one is a Muslim or not. For example, Muhammad وسلم, is widely considered the most influential man in history, even among non-Muslims. During his life, he established the foundations of a major new world religion, world civilization, uh, and launched wars that would overthrow two of the three greatest world empires of his age. No person in history has turned more people to the monotheistic worship of God than he has. His religion is the strongest and most robust in human history and will soon have the greatest number of followers. While other religions, including Christianity, collapse before our eyes, Islam stands alone, offering the only religious alternative to atheism and secularism. Due to these amazing achievements, it's, a na it's natural that people take Muhammad's message more seriously than they would otherwise. When it comes to founding figures associated with other religions, it usually cannot be established that they did anything amazing. For example, many amazing acts are attributed to Zoroaster and Moses, but these cannot be verified because their existence cannot be verified. The same is arguably true of Buddha. Jesus preached for a few years before being crucified according to Christians. Christianity then spread across the Roman Empire, which is quite impressive, but the understanding of Christianity that spread had little to do with what can be traced to the purported teachings of Jesus. Rather, what spread were teachings of Paul, which mutated over time through a series of church councils.
Finally, statistical studies show that Muslim societies across the world have the highest levels of religious belief and the strongest system of marriage and family. This is due to the Sharia, a concrete, coherent, time-tested system of rules for how to live. Other religions lack such a system. For example, Christianity and Buddhism currently do not have a concrete system of rules to guide people, with the result that Christians and Buddhist populations simply take on whichever values and norms of the dominant political system. In the Roman Empire, every Christian accepts Roman imperialism. In feudal Europe, every Christian accepts European feudalism. In a liberal communist country, every Christian accepts liberalism or communism. Judaism and Hinduism do have systems of rules, but anyone who closely examines these rules sees that they're full of contradictions and have constantly changed over time. As a result, no one, including Jews and Hindus, take them seriously or apply them consistently. The Sharia is different because it does provide individuals and societies with a concrete blueprint for living a life which values religion, marriage, family, and community. All these factors make Islam the most compelling religion. Thank you very much for those openings, gentlemen. I'm going to trust you guys. We're going to jump into the open dialogue to discuss the evidence for Islam. The floor is all yours. I think this one's mostly pretty easy. I, I'm happy to know that Islam is the only thing standing in the way of secularism because I can stop, find, find all those Christians, I can stop debating them now. Um, so I'm wondering what the criteria that you're using to, I mean, you, you talked about it, um, but you gave a couple of, you implied a couple of different criteria, like uh, that Islam centers on monotheism and that this makes it superior or more compelling than Christianity, which relies on theism or on, on the Trinity, except that Christianity is more popular than Islam. So what makes Islam more compelling other than the number of adherents? And, and then it, it seemed like you suggested that those other ones change, which I agree, that's, that's a problem when, when you think you've got the truth, and then it changes as the, uh, the world, which has been impacted by uh, cognitive colonialism, changes around you, and your religion changes. That's a problem for your credibility. But that would make Scientology more credible. So what criteria do we have to determine that Islam is the most compelling? What, which one are you using? Well, it's, it's a confluence of factors. So there's not going to be one, uh, you know, clear cut. Oh, this is it. This is what makes it most compelling. It's a confluence of multiple factors. And that's natural. Like when we evaluate any kind of belief system, there is, it's a complex belief system. You want to know if I, should I accept capitalism or communism or socialism or anarchism? I'll evaluate those complex systems and find multiple things that are compelling about each one. Some will have deal breakers. Some will, some will be less compelling in other aspects. You have to take a confluence of factors. And these are just four that I mentioned. They're not the only four. Uh, but these are things where I think we can get a grasp on what do we mean by compelling? Like, what do we mean something is compelling? Or, oh, okay, this is an interesting idea. We should explore it. Maybe we should accept it. That's why, uh, you know, these are the four that I focused on. So, for example, I could, you know, I'd ask you um, just very honestly to understand your perspective. So would you concede, for example, or would you agree that it undermines religious belief when texts and doctrines change over time? Uh, and that Islam is more, assuming that it hasn't changed, Islam is more compelling than religions that have changed over time. Like Christianity, I'll say, or Judaism, or uh, Zoroastrianism. Perhaps, I, I think, it, I'm glad you, glad you mentioned it's complicated. Perhaps, um, the thing is, for me, is if the actual scripture changes, um, maybe that could be because it's like correcting something. Um, so I can't say for sure that that should make it less compelling. I will say that it does 
that does impact its credibility as it changes. What I find to impact its credibility even more is when the religion as practiced begins to deviate from the traditional religion with, without the text changing, that that impacts its credibility more. I think we agree, like we're on the same page. So if you start deviating from what the text says, um, like, for example, me, many of the Hindu texts advocate the caste system. And many Hindus today find the caste system absolutely abhorrent. So that is that would be an example of the practitioners deviating from the what the texts actually advocate. Um, so I think we're we're agreed on that. If there's a deviation with what people are practicing compared to what the text says, because the text is purportedly from a supernatural source, and a supernatural source is going to have certain features, like being infallible or having knowledge that an average human doesn't have. And they also purport to be these timeless truths. So if the text changes or it's it gets updated or there are mistakes found, then that, that would uh, destroy the credibility of that religion. Now, if a religion has been preserved, the people are practicing uh, according to its texts, that's not proof that the religion is, is true, but that's a compelling factor. It adds to the credibility. And I think Islam is really unique as a religion in that regard. So would it be fair to say that what you're, what you're looking at, because it's complex, is almost like a ranked choice voting where you give Islam a score a two out of 50 on popularity and a one out of 50 on or two out of 50 on consistency with the uh, original text and uh, an X out of whatever. And then you add them all up and then Islam wins out as the most compelling. Yeah, that's a, that's a simple way to put it. I think it's, it's I'm a simple guy, but I think that's a, the way that the human mind works, like people who convert to Islam or another religion, like that's how they evaluate. They look at um, different factors. It's a complex thing that can take years or it can take minutes, but that's the way that naturally, organically, we come to accept certain worldviews or belief systems. Um, so it, when it when it comes to the. Christianity being uh, having the most adherence currently, I would say that the core theology of Islam is belief in one creator God and that monotheism. And I think that actually is uh, held by the vast majority of Christians. Um, and when Christians are surveyed, they about 30 to 40 percent, I forgot the exact number, won't even accept the Trinity as uh, true. So I consider even those, Christ those Christians or a large portion of Christians agree with the with monotheism. Um, Hindus, the same thing. Buddhists, the same thing. Like this idea of one creator God, one all-powerful creator, that is the dominant theology. And, and what's interesting is if you survey people across the world about what is your strongest belief, like belief in the afterlife belief in karma, belief in reincarnation, belief in, um, you know, the Buddha, uh, or belief in God as a creator, the number one most compelling religious belief that people will vote on is belief in one God. And I, I, that's why I focused on monotheism as really a top choice, because it's, it's supported by many different natural intuitions that people have that they develop from childhood. And the fact that Islam puts that at the top of its theology with Tawheed, that, that is a big point in favor. Like if we have a scorecard, that's a big point in favor of Islam.
I don't know how much of a point in favor it is, but in the interest of finding at least one more thing to agree on, the Trinity is garbage and uh, Judaism is not just potentially polytheistic, but also potentially henotheistic. But this gets down to what, uh, from the pool of people who are likely to accept supernatural claims about a god, um, there seems to certainly be a trend towards more monotheistic things, but this is about what people find is popular. What do we do with, for example, the argument that Islam, uh, while it has remained unchanged a little bit since uh, you know the seventh century, what about the argument that this is just a respin on Judaism, just like Christianity is a respin on Judaism, and therefore Christianity and Islam have both departed from the actual origins, and therefore they've both changed, and neither of them are compelling? Um, it's, that's a good question. Islam doesn't claim to be like a spin-off of Judaism. Um, Islam uh, has its doctrines and teachings. What Islam says is that there have been prophets sent throughout the course of human history to bring the revelation of God. And there's different revelations that are sent progressively to prophets. And the Quran is the final ref revelation with the final prophet, Muhammad So Judaism makes claims about, okay, these are the teachings of Moses and we have the Torah, we have the oral Torah, and we, we have these kinds of doctrines and practices. And th they will not be able to historically verify that the Torah is actually traced to you know, the time of Moses as a historical figure. There's actually no archeological evidence or radiocarbon evidence, manuscript evidence that Moses even existed. As Muslims, we believe that Moses existed as a prophet and he's one of the most frequently mentioned prophets in the Quran, but we believe in the existence of Moses because of the Quran, because we believe in the Quran, we accept revelation. But with Muhammad, it's like a it's a different uh, it's a different category because he is verified independently as a historical figure, sallallahu alaihi and he in the Quran itself also has been historically verified to the seventh century, and there are non-Muslim accounts that through manuscripts from the seventh century that would describe like what Muslims do, like Muslims. Pray. Muslims face the face Mecca for prayers. Muslims have this pilgrimage. Like all the things that Muslims are doing today, it's been independently historically verified that they're doing it 1,400 years ago. This adds to the compellingness. Is it like a knockdown of this is the proof? No, I'm not claiming that. But it's adding to the compellingness in a unique way that's not found in these other major religions. So, so you also, you said that atheists claim that all religions are equally compelling. I'm an atheist. I don't claim that. Never have. So, but which religion do you think is is more compelling, other than secular humanism? You're you're defining that as well. other than the one I already talked about. Um, I would say uh, I don't know if you saw the debate that I did with Issa the other day, um, who is an advocate for a particular strange Sufism version of Islam. But I find that one more compelling than yours. Um, personally, but what I'm but personally on what basis, if you can just uh, flesh that out a little bit. His, his version agrees with me on a number of social issues that you and I definitely don't agree on. And so your version of Islam is fundamentally, for me, worse than his. Well, putting the, the, the moral, morality question aside, like, is there anything else like theologically or about doctrine and that makes it more compelling or is it just social issues and more morality? Well, no, no, no. The, the actual, 
Uh, to be fair, I don't fully understand his doctrines, and I, I think uh, he's not here. This isn't fair. I probably shouldn't have mentioned him, et cetera. Um, I, I don't know what you would think of them. I, I could easily imagine you and, and most any other Muslim I've engaged with saying that guy's not a Muslim. Um, I could absolutely imagine that because he's pretty much a, an, an atheistic Muslim that loves secular humanism but wants to reform Islam. And so how that ties into this, or I think he wants, I don't want to put words in his mouth, how that ties into this is, you know, I asked about dealing with the notion that Islam is at least a departure, a change from a foundation in Judaism. But we also have the issue of Islam is younger than Christianity or Islam. And so maybe we need to wait 700 years to see how much more it might change because in addition to that, we have a good history of change that led to, I'm, I'm not a history guy. And I'm, I can see that. And I'm, not, I'm not a Muslim, but I'm going to get some of this wrong. But like the, uh, is it the 79 in Iran where um, we had basically countries that were primarily Muslim, but they had gotten so far from the foundations that it sparked basically a revolution and the return of people. And eventually after the, the 79 thing, you get into um, Al-Qaeda in the 80s, I believe. I don't, I don't fully know, um, but there are changes and there are people who are trying to get it back to what it was. And so if the compellingness of it is about whether or not it changes, I don't think it's accurate to say that Islam has changed less because not only have we had less time to look at it, but there have been changes and attempts to bring it back. And so there's a, a credibility issue, uh, not necessarily from the people who are saying, no, no, we need to stick with the text, but just a credibility issue across Islam. Well, the text, that's something that's objectively been preserved. Uh, I put some references on the screen. Uh, I cite them in a lot of my debates about the preservation of the Quran and non-Muslims uh, uh, claiming this on the basis of manuscripts that they've discovered, I would would agree. Like if seven hundred years, um, like it's it's shown that a religion is going has changed, that would decrease from its compellingness. That would change. That would change the way I rank its compellingness. If that were the case, what, uh, but oh, we're talking sorry. about now, like our time now. What is more compelling? Um, but I, I would, if you indulge me, I'd like to know, like, how do you rank the religion in, in terms of compellingness? Um, so if you, the major religions. Sure. I, I, I have a list of their popularity, it. so I could, I could look at them and try. Um, let me, I don't want to lose my follow-up. Never mind. I lost my follow-up. Um, let's see. Um, on whether or not they're true, uh, I think Scientology's bullshit. I think it's obviously bullshit, just like I think Mormonism's obviously bullshit, clearly invented as fictions to manipulate and control people. Uh, what I suspect is that we, I might think that for many other religions, if I had access to them at their origin and what was going on then. Um, there are uh, some of these religions I prefer um, so, for example, I, I tend to prefer Judaism to Christianity, uh, in part because they don't have a big interest in proselytizing, and you have to actually do some work to become a Jew. If you want to be a Christian, you just, here, let's just pray the Lord's Prayer, which, you know, I did every week for a while when I was a teenager, because you got to rededicate your life to Christ and all that crap. Um, but I find Judaism, I, I think, as a foundation, 
the more things you add to it, whether you're adding in the direction of Christianity or adding in the direction of Islam, not to say that that's exactly what happened. I find that the more untestable, unverifiable things you add to it, the less credible it is to me. So I put Judaism ahead of those. I don't know enough about African traditional religions. Some things like animism and spiritism, uh, they don't make proclamations so much about how we should live our life. It's mostly about here's our spirit answers or these, you know, I like to think that my ancestors, I, I'm not saying I, this. I don't think there's anything after death, but I can understand people and see the appeal of, I'd like to think my ancestors live, but there's nothing about that that's going to say, oh, because of that, you know, two dudes can't get married. That that sort of thing doesn't happen. And, and not, not just that, but it's not, while, while Islam may be one of the big obstacles in the way of a secular world, right now in the United States, Islam is not relevant on that front. What we're facing in the United States is Christian dominionism and extreme literalist, fundamentalist Christian dominionism, which is why I've spent so much time actually debating that. Um, I don't know which ones I find necessarily more repugnant. Hinduism, I might put ahead of it just because, and this is really glib and silly, but I don't believe any of these. Um, they got closer to the age of the universe than, than, than the Bible did. In the Bible, if you did a literal thing, it'd be six to 10,000 years old. And Hindus at least think it's 13 billion in a cycle. It's not that, but you know, if you're throwing a dart at a dartboard, they're at least somewhere on the dartboard and Christianity is in the other room, uh, as is any literalist view that dates it back to Genesis. Um, yeah, I mean, some of these, it's more like, What's likely to be the impact on the world? So, and, and maybe this is probably, maybe it fits here, but it may be better for, which is better for the world, yeah. secular humanism or Islam. But a world full of Jains, uh, I think it's silly, but the insects are going to be really happy that the Jains have covered their face so that they don't even inhale an insect to kill it. That's the, that's the level of their pacifism. And I much prefer that to anybody in any religion who says, let's go out and kill people, which, by the way, is wholly inconsistent with secular humanism. Yeah, so, I mean, th thank you for indulging me um, and giving your reasons. But they're, they're very personal, you know, what strikes you in one case or another. This is why this is a difficult thing to debate and establish. And I try to get our, my mind around, you know, this, con this epistemology, how do we come to accept belief systems? And I've, I've put these four things here in, on this slide that you have four criteria for compelling this. I think they're good criteria. They can be disputed. It seems like we agree on some of them uh, or we have shades of agreement, like on preservation. It seems that we have shades of agreement. Um, Sharia, number four, we're going to have a lot of disagreement, but it's we're going to really hash it out in the next part of the debate. Monotheism, when it comes to that, um, I guess I can ask you something like, do you find it, would it be more compelling, the idea that there's one God who has caused the entire universe and controls the universe, as opposed to 377 gods? Like if you had those two choices, is, is it one, like without any other information, one God controlling the universe or 377? Well, to be consistent, I'm going to say that I can't make a decision, but to be generous, one. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the tendency that human beings have. And there's this really good book called Big Gods by Ara Narenzian. 
And it's, it falls in this genre of uh, psychology of religion. But he describes how when monotheism is in, introduced into polytheistic societies, um, even when it's not militarily, but the in, idea is introduced, it tends to win out over polytheism. And the way that he explains it, as well as other cognitive scientists of religion, is that there's something more compelling about the idea of a big God or one God um, that is uh, in control or is giving blessings or controlling destiny, etc. The idea of monotheism has this kind of intuitive basis. And that's, that's also why 80 to 90% of people today believe in the idea of an all-powerful creator. What was shocking is that even Buddhists, because in Buddhism, Buddha mocked the idea of gods. Buddha mocked, you know, according to Buddhist uh, texts mock the idea of a of Brahma or a creator God. Yet, when we look at Buddhist societies today, the majority will have this kind of belief in monotheism. So that adds to the compellingness. Like that is a, just an, in, an intuitive, compelling idea. And so that's, that's the basis for point number one, preservation point number two. And then your thoughts on like amazing acts because every religion claims that its founder performed miracles, including Islam. But that doesn't help us because we're not witnessing those miracles. But there are amazing acts. So, for example, if I sit, sat here and said that, you know, I have supernatural powers and I um, will uh, do, you know, conquer the world and I will uh, establish this ideology as the one true ideology that everyone accepts you all would, would justifiably laugh at me if that's it was just claims that I made. But if next year you see that, oh, Daniel is now, you know, taking over certain countries and he's established his ideology and it's fast spreading across the world, all else being equal, you'd start to wonder like, oh, that's interesting. You know, and after two years, after three years, like that would add to the credibility or the compellingness of my initial claim. Would you agree? I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not completely sure. Um, it, it it might be compelling. Um, but now we're, to the, we're now we're at the point, or we're back at the point that I started with, which is this particular topic is silly, and and I don't mean that in in, in an overly dismissive or, or simple sense. But when you talk about all of these religions have competing amazing acts or miracles. So if you took a list of all the religions that include miracles and listed their beliefs, we know that they cannot all be true because they have competing views and claims about who and what a god is. And yet they all have reports about amazing events that cannot and have not been demonstrated empirically. And if they were all to be true, that would create a conflict. And so at the beginning of this segment in Daniel's opening, when he talked about um, Occam's razor and, and kind of mildly misrepresented it as the simplest explanation, prefers to be the best, that's, the, that's the, the common version. It's actually don't multiply entities unnecessarily, which is too complicated. So I'll just go with the simplest explanation seems to be preferred. The simplest explanation is that humans make shit up. The simplest explanation is that humans get stuff wrong. The simplest explanation is that all of these people from competing religions that have competing and mutually exclusive concepts of God that are making claims about what their prophets and, and people do on behalf of those gods are lying 
or misinformed or exaggerating? Hyperbole is what we're prone to, claiming that we know something. We've all heard about fish stories. We've all heard about the old wives' tales that I mentioned at the beginning. There's a reason why we don't just rely on intuition. As a matter of fact, minimizing intuition is, I think, something that would be preferable. But that, that's not the same thing as elimination, because what epistemology is doing, what skepticism is doing, what critical thinking is doing, is training your intuition. It is something that you can be trained so that you can more reliably intuit what's going to be the correct answer, because it's not just an intuition. It is your brain's ability to assess all the data you have. So when you mentioned, for example, children uh, looking and seeing, oh, this appears designed and this doesn't, well, children see things that are designed and they're not completely silly. Um, granted, uh, I'm, I, I'm not the biggest fan of rel relying on children for our epistemology, but it shows that children show that we rely on top-down authoritative thinking. And I think that the best explanation for the fact that one religion is more compelling to another is that it appeals to people on a psychological level and not on an epistemic level not on some level where there's some warrant. People tend to go along with the religion they were raised in. Then the religion, whether they were raised in it or they convert to one, that most appeals to their own personal ideals. And so if you are the type of person with a psychology where you want, you don't, you're really struggling with the fact that you can't know everything, it's really comforting to think that there's a God who does. And if you're the person who's struggling with being lonely, it's really comforting to think that there's a God who cares about you and loves you and has a plan for your life. We are all directionless at some point. And so I think the, the religions that are, that are most compelling, and I judge that primarily by which ones have the most adherence, are compelling specifically because they appeal to things about us and not to things that are true, which is what I'm concerned with. Because if I just picked the religion that I found most compelling, I'd wind up believing something that may not be true, that I don't have good reason to think is true, and that would prevent me from finding out whatever is true, because the second you stop exercising your skepticism and critical thinking and accept an explanation for something, you stop looking for the right one, because if you think you've got the right explanation, why would you keep looking? And this is why, and I'll, I'll stop here because I don't want to give 20 things for Daniel to reply to, but this is why in the competition between religion David Wood and I can team up on Kenny. David and Kenny can team up on me. Me and Kenny can team up on David. And at no point is there a demonstration of the truth of any of the positions other than me saying, you guys haven't met your burden of proof. And while that doesn't say that we shouldn't use intuition or that we shouldn't look at religions that are compelling, whether or not a religion is true isn't impacted by the number of people who are compelled to accept it. Because one truth is that the overwhelming majority of people accept some God over no God. That's just the way it is currently. Will it always be that way? I don't know. If we're going to complain about pushing analytical thinking, I don't think we've done enough. Because the fact that more people still prefer some God to no God means that we haven't been pushing analytical analysis enough. And a lot of people are still relying on their intuition. Because... Yeah, it's a long list. It, it, yes, it's it's a ton. I'm, that's not what I meant to do, but I think they rely on it because quite often it's unfalsifiable. And if there's no way to prove you wrong, why change your mind? 
So I just want to clarify that my argument um, in the first part of the debate or, or now has never been that we just rely on intuitions. Um, intuitions are a starting point, but then you have inferential reasoning that theists have given across many different cultures, the cosmological argument, the contingency argument, the teleological design argument. Those are also evidences uh, for God. You also have uh, communal traditions that our natural human epistemology does take into account what other people think and what our community thinks. And we're a part of a society, a part of a community that affects our understanding of reality and the world. So the, the evidence for God is multidimensional, but intuition, that is like a basis. Uh, but you can have different epistemic channels that support the uh, the existence of God and religion more generally. What you're saying is that um, what is compelling is really what is compelling to us personally and individually. Um, I think that that is a great point for us to, as a point of departure for our conversation, because I agree, like what is compelling on a personal level? The fact of the matter is because of this field called psychology, that human beings share a mental framework. And what is appealing or compelling to one person does have a connection to what is found appealing to someone else on the other side of the world. We do have a shared uh, structure of our minds because we're human beings. The brain structure is similar universally across all human beings. So this is that is why like certain things can be compelling to people universally. That's why math is so compelling, regardless of your culture. That's why logic is so compelling. That's why the idea of there being an external world, yeah, there's a there are plenty there's plenty of diversity in religions and cultures and ideologies, but we also find universals, and those universals are due to a shared human biology. Whether you want to attribute that to evolution or you want to attribute that to God, the creator, there is that universality amongst human beings. So we need to, in having a debate on these complex topics involving ethics and epistemology and comparative religion, we have to appeal to what is shared, what is universal, because that's the only way we can get a conversation or a debate going. If off the bat, you don't accept logic and I don't accept math and you don't accept whatever, we don't have any shared ground in order to debate. Um, but my attempt with this part of the debate and this presentation is to appeal to things that are universal. I've asked you some questions about what you find compelling. I think we do have some common ground here, at least much more than the first part of the debate on things that, yeah, certain religions would be more compelling. You, you acknowledge that when you said that the idea of one God uh, being in charge of the universe is more compelling than 377 gods. That means that that religion that acknowledges one God as opposed to 377 is a more compelling religion. And that's not just you, your personal preference. You are appealing to this sense of Occam's razor in a, in a predictable way that cognitive psychologists have studied. They have done experiments on. They've literally put diodes on people's skulls in order to see what part of the brain that intuition is associated with. That's the study of psychology. So that's what I'm appealing to um, in, in this part of the debate, in the first part of the debate. I think when we have this more uh, accurate understanding of human epistemology and the human brain and human psychology, that shows that 
why so many theists actually find religion compelling and specifically monotheism compelling and why Islam has been so compelling and has had so many adherents throughout the centuries. That's really the crux of my argument. So just for quick clarification, because I know we're at, at the time, uh, I don't find math compelling as a result of intuition. I don't, don't view math in the realm of intuition. Mathematics is a language that we've come up to describe things. And it's just, it is, it is deductively uh, reached from logic. Now, logic is, you know, we can't demonstrate the foundations of that. But back to this portion of the debate, um, yes, I agree some religions are more compelling than others. And yes, I agree that some of them are more compelling for psychological reasons about the, who we are as people. I don't agree that any religion is more compelling on the grounds of evidence that it is true. And that is the part that I care about. Now, if we're in agreement that religions can't demonstrate their truth, and all we're going to do is look at whether or not we, people find them compelling, then we might as well just have like American Idol voting and determine a, natural, a national religion that way. It wouldn't be consistent with secular humanism, though, because under secular humanism, you could still be a Muslim. Under some versions of Islam, I would be killed for being a secular humanist and saying and doing some of the things I do, which is why atheist bloggers in Bangladesh were killed. I'm not saying that you or anybody, hashtag not all Muslims, that'll be coming up in the next round. But the notion that a world, which is, I guess we're doing part three right after this, a world... Uh, under Islam versus a world under secular humanism, which one's better? I guess we'll sort that out in the next hour. Yeah, we can agree that the scientific method is not going to decide between religions. So we're agreed on that. But again, like going back to the entire um, basis of my presentation is that there are psychological tendencies that affect our understanding of reality. Um, there is intuitions and psychological tendencies that affect how we understand the world and what we accept as true. And that reality extends far beyond what can be strictly proven scientifically. And certain religious truths, not all religious claims, also fall under that. Um, and that's why I'm focusing on the ones that are most intuitively supported according to the cognitive science of religion. The creator God uh, view or intuition, that is something that is very strongly intuitively felt. For some people, as strong as uh, moral truths like harming others uh, for no reason is wrong or the law of non-contradiction or the idea that the external world exists, uh, our memories are true. All of these things are part of our reality or what we understand to be real. Um, so that's... That's why we have to go to this. Um, we have to go beyond the scientific method. We can't just rely on what is uh, strictly scientifically verifiable. Otherwise, we agree there would be no debate. I agree that if we just have the standard of scientific uh, verifiability or falsifiability, uh, no religion is going to be more compelling on that basis. Even if you if you said that, oh well, there's a flying spaghetti monster, um, and that's my religion. That's not that's just as unfalsifiable as as these empirically unfalsifiable as these other theologies. But that's not, that's not my point of departure. I think this would 
This would be a great opportunity to jump into the next section, the final section, where we'll have 10-minute opening statements from each speaker. This is on the topic, specifically secular humanism versus Islam, which is best for society. As I mentioned, there will be 10-minute openings. We'll start with Matt, and then we'll have 40 minutes of discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A. With that, thank you very much. Matt, the floor is all yours. Oh, crap. I thought you were doing another five-minute break. I don't have to pee, so it's okay. My, my bladder's not quite that small. So, secular humanism or Islam, which one's better for the world? Well, as I already kind of worked in some of the stuff, I did this a, a debate on this subject last week, and so I'm going to steal things from that opening, but I also mentioned that secular humanism has as its foundation the betterment of a world for humans. And so any idea within a religion would at least be worked into it under humanism. Um, fair warning, I'm going to piss people off. Sorry, not sorry. This stuff's important. And so I'll start off uh, by talking a little bit about secular humanism and that it has as, it, as its focus the betterment of humanity, while Islam has as its focus adherence to God, which may or may not be in the interest of the betterment of humanity. It depends on which version of Islam and how different people view um, what Allah wants and what we're expected to do. And we also have this problem that I mentioned the other day, which is the temptation to look at data uh, comparing Islam and secular humanism fails because we don't have a secular humanist state. And it may in fact be a bad thing that I might be opposed to, to have a secular humanist state. A secular state, yes. But I don't think that it's the purview of the government to be telling people what their religious values should be and what what religion they're going to support. And with humanism, in some models, being a religion, I think there may be a problem. There's certainly values that are consistent with any number of religions that I have no problem at all uh, incorporating into a government. But theocracy sucks. Almost every stinking one of them sucks and have been the absolute bane of the existence of progress in humanity. I won't tell the story in detail, but you guys can go look up why in the West we use Arabic numerals and have algebra and all kinds of things that come from a wonderful Arabic culture and how, at least in the instance of one Muslim cleric, wiped a good chunk of that out and the progress that was being made along there. So the next temptation, if we don't have data to compare two cultures right now, is to look at the lives of secular humanists and compare them. You're going to find some secular humanists who are awful people. They're probably paying lip service to secular humanism, but it's very difficult to get into a no true Scotsman fallacy. I just know a bunch of atheists who I think are crap, just have the worst ideas. But, yeah, you're welcome. I forgive you. But in a nutshell, whether God exists or not, we have problems to solve. And Daniel and I, well, actually, Daniel and I don't have to find a way to work together after this, but in the broader sense of humanity, Daniel and I would have to find a way to work together if we were working towards a similar goal. And if we're trying to do that, I don't get to appeal to a God. He doesn't get to appeal to a God. I don't, neither of us get to appeal to any values that we don't necessarily share. And so that puts the onus on each of us to try to convince the other to share those values. Now, there's a bunch of studies on religiosity and societal health that have been cited in the past, but we simply don't have the data set to really address this. So for me, it starts with what's the focus? In secular humanism, the focus is on autonomy, freedom, consent, a view that 
a number of Muslims, including Daniel, don't seem to understand. The consent of an individual to any imposition on their body is paramount. You don't get to do something to somebody else without their consent. And it needs to be informed, enthusiastic consent. Four-year-olds can't consent to sex or marriage, whether they've had precocious puberty or not. And it's repugnant to suggest otherwise. When we look at the comparison of lives, Muslims in the United States live a completely different life than Muslims in other countries. Not every Muslim-run nation is the same. When we look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was signed in 1948, um, Saudi Arabia abstained, and later on, um, Iran voted for it. But then after their revolution, Iran came back and basically said, no, that's not uh, right. And instead, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation supported the Cairo Declaration on Human Rights because it was consistent with Sharia law, or at least some version of that, and, and, and squelched their objections with the United Nations version. But one thing we can say about secular humanism is that there is no sect, denomination, or secular hum of secular humanism that has ever required someone to believe something that is not empirically verifiable. For the record, I'm talking about facts about reality. Secular humanism doesn't require that you believe X moral claim, by the way. It states what its views are, but that's not a requirement to believe. So secular humanists do have beliefs that are not empirical, but there's no requirement that people believe something that's not empirical. No, no sect or denomination of secular humanism has ever ordered the death of another person, ordered or acted to attack or destroy property of any other person or government, never overthrown a democracy to impose a secular humanist regime, never been connected with terrorist cells or activities, never advocated for treating people differently over their gender with regard to what rights and freedoms they have, never advocated for treating people with different rights and freedoms based on their sexuality, never denied freedom of speech or expression, never called for the deaths of people for drawing any person or anything. Thing. Never called for the deaths of people for criticizing secular humanism or any other religious view. Never advocated for or inspired suicide bombers or terrorist attacks. Hashtag not all Muslims. I'm not saying all Muslims are terrorists or all terrorists are Muslims or all people with bad ideas or either. But if we're going to put a hashtag not all Muslims, we should also have hashtag virtually no secular humanists. Because these various problems that arise primarily through theocracies and through religion's attempt to control governments and control the world and shoot down anybody who disagrees with them, that's what happens when religions take over a world. Now, the claim is, well, it would just be nice if everybody was Muslim, then there wouldn't be any conflict. And if everybody was Christian, there wouldn't be any conflict. But that's not only unrealistic, it's exactly the same thing that abusers say, I only beat you because I love you. If you just do what I say, you wouldn't make me do this to you. That's the exact same justification. Christian extremists, Christian dominionists, slightly different groups. Christian dominionists want, uh, want a Christian country, a Christian world. Christian extremists are awful and want worse. Christian extremist organizations are things like KKK, white supremacist, white nationalist organizations. People on behalf of their religious beliefs, not secular humanism, have caused great harm on behalf of their religion. And many will say, oh, well, that's not the true version of our religion. True. We're only a few days out from the anniversary of 9-11. The radical Islamists flew planes into buildings. 
We're only a few years away from the Charlie Hebdo attacks, where people went in with guns and killed satirists for mocking Prophet Muhammad. Never in my life would I, I'm not an artist, I had no inclination to draw Muhammad or anyone else. But as soon as you tell me that, that I can't, I will. And I did. And I posted it. Not an offensive, nothing. It was just a normal tracing of an individual that was represented as Muhammad and I drew it. Was that wrong of me? Was it, was it wrong of me to draw an image of someone that doesn't make any sort of quality or quantitative adjustment, uh, assessment about them at all? I just did something because a religious group said I couldn't and they killed some other people for doing it. Between 1979 and 2019, Islamists, hashtag not all Muslims, have been followed by terrorist watch groups and committed 35,000 attacks with 160,000 deaths. That doesn't exist for secular humanism. Not only does it not exist, I'm not aware of any secular humanist organization that has ever been on any terrorist watch list or hate group watch list. And yet that can't be said for Islam, and it can't be said for Christianity. Plenty of groups attached to both religions are in there. Which one's worse? Flip a coin. Primarily, it depends on which one's in power or which one is struggling to gain power. None of that stuff exists within secular humanism. And it doesn't exist primarily because of foundational principles of autonomy, freedom, and consent. And that is, I permit all of you to believe as your conscience dictates and to act in accordance with what your conscience dictates right up to the point where your rights and freedoms come in conflict with someone else. And that is the point which a government is justified in stepping in. The founders of the United States created a constitution that was a living document, and they had a notion of separation of religion and government, sometimes called separation of church and state. They didn't write it in there expressly, but they didn't, it was included in the letter to Danbury Baptist. The constitution of the United States was unanimously or the, the, the Treaty of Tripoli was unanimously uh, ratified, saying the, the United States is in no way founded on Christianity. And yet, Christianity is the dominant religion here and, and is the cornerstone of many ideas of the broken parts of the United States of America. And when we throw out consent, when we say, in order for you to be a good person, you are not allowed to leave the house without somebody else with you. You're not allowed to leave the house without wearing some garment covering you. You are not allowed to engage in the sort of love that you would like to engage with with another person, even though it doesn't harm anybody else. You don't get to consent to whether or not you're going to be married. You are a property of a God, no matter which God. You diminish humanity. You sacrifice everything that we value as humans, about our liberty and freedom, the right to be here and govern our own lives to the best we can. You sacrifice everything on the altar of an idea that you cannot prove and that objectively, demonstrably results in harm for people. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for that opening, Matt. We'll kick it over to Daniel for his 10-minute opening as well. Daniel, thanks for being with us. The floor is all yours.
Here is a thought experiment. Imagine there's a company called Pleasure Inc. and they invent the pleasure machine. You strap a person in, pull down the virtual reality helmet, plug in a few diodes into the skull that tap into the pleasure centers of the brain. You pull the switch and then pure unadulterated bliss. The brain implants and the VR are so powerful that any pleasurable experience you want to have, you can have it. You can satisfy basic bodily pleasures, but the tech is so advanced that you can simulate any desire. You want to vacation on the beach with supermodels? No problem. You want to travel the world and sample cuisine from every region? No problem. Every form of pleasure and entertainment is now at your fingertips. The pleasure machine comes on market and is heavily advertised. People start using it for recreation on the weekends, but the machine works too well. People can't get themselves off of it. Eventually, pleasure machine users are strapped in for 10, 15, even 20 hours a day. They can't stop using it. The constant supply of dopamine is too much to resist. Before the pleasure machine, people had time for their extended families. People would get together with aunts, uncles, cousins. If you had elderly parents, you would take care of them. If you had grandparents, you could spend time with them. But as more people get hooked on the pleasure machine, there's no time for extended family. And let's be honest, what's more fun, fulfilling any fantasy or sitting and talking with grandma? As the pleasure machine continues to spread, the whole concept of extended family dies off. People only have time for their spouse and their kids, but even this nuclear family gradually becomes too much of a burden. The only thing that people want to do is to plug themselves in. Over time, pleasure machines get a bad reputation for disrupting families and sales start to drop. Pleasure Inc. realizes it needs a new strategy. First of all, let's improve the machine so that people don't have to worry about unplugging themselves to eat. Anything the body needs biologically can now be supplied by the machine so that hypothetically you can stay plugged in nonstop. Second, let's get the government to subsidize the machines. We want to make sure that anyone who wants a pleasure machine can afford to get one, even if it takes government assistance. Third, more aggressive marketing techniques are needed. People who oppose the pleasure machine say that it destroys marriage, destroys families. Now they're even saying it destroys cultures and religions because maintaining culture or religious traditions requires people to make an effort, to work hard, to make personal sacrifices, not to mention maintain bonds with others. How can you do any of that if you're strapped into a pleasure machine for most of the hours of the day? In the beginning, religious people used the machines, and then sometimes they'd miss prayers, sometimes they'd miss going to church. Then they start missing major holidays, like fasting in Ramadan and other important cultural uh, communal rituals. So the opponents of the pleasure machines now claim that the product not only destroys marriage, family, and culture, but also community and religion. How do we counter that in our marketing? Well, it's hard to deny the accusation, so let's embrace it. Let's tell people that the pleasure machine is actually liberating people from the shackles. Marriage, family, community, and religion are all sources of so much toil and headache. Why bother with that when you can enjoy limitless pleasure? The pleasure machine is the great liberator. Furthermore, marriage, family, and religion are the source of so much pain and suffering. Who doesn't have conflict with parents? Who doesn't have an insensitive spouse? Who doesn't feel judged when going to church or the mosque? To make matters worse, these institutions are also rife with abuse. There's domestic abuse, child abuse, abuse in the church and the mosque. Also, these institutions are rife with unjust hierarchies and inequality and lack of consent. 
The pleasure machine, on the other hand, is the great equalizer. When you're strapped in, you can enjoy yourself as much as the elites. Everyone is equal in the pleasure machine. This is the marketing we need to push through TV, movies, music, books, social media. And if anyone opposes our product, we simply accuse them of being backwards, irrational, and filled with hate. How can you reject liberation and equality? Are you a fan of domestic abuse? Are you a fan of child molestation, of white supremacy, of religious bigotry? What are you, some kind of terrorist? Pleasure Inc. realizes that the older generations are going to be wiser and won't be the biggest advocates of their product because they have more life experience and know the value of life unplugged. So Pleasure Inc. focuses on the younger generations with targeted ads on TikTok and elsewhere. Pleasure Inc. also wants its message of equality and liberation to re reach youth in schools. Let's make sure that all schools raise awareness about the benefits of using the pleasure machine and how not using it can cause pain and suffering in life. Adoption of the pleasure machine continues to spread at rapid pace and Pleasure Inc. decides to break into new markets internationally. The only problem is many countries are banning the pleasure machine. They don't want their societies being disrupted, their cultures and religions being wiped out with the introduction of this technology. But due to heavy lobbying, Pleasure Inc. has infiltrated every level of Western government and they leverage their connections to pass new international law. The new law is that every nation must allow their citizens to buy a pleasure machine. Not only that, but every nation must subsidize the pleasure machine to make it available to every citizen. This is a more imperative. Why? Because the pleasure machine, as we know, is the great liberator and the great equalizer. If nations don't facilitate access to the pleasure machine, that's a violation of human rights. Every human must have access to the pleasure machine and only the most evil totalitarian regimes would keep their people under the boot by not letting them entertain every single desire. Despite the new international laws, some rogue nations continue to resist. These nations are portrayed as terrorists and human rights violators in the media. The news shows images of little children covered in dirt, little girls crying. Look at these poor suffering children. What kind of evil monsters would prevent these precious darlings from using the pleasure machine? We need to impose sanctions on these countries. Even if half the population dies off due to starvation, that's a price we're willing to pay to make sure the other half of the population gets access to the pleasure machine. And if these terrorists still refuse, we'll just have to use military intervention. We don't want to use bombs and tanks, but that's the price for spreading freedom. Once we've liberated the nations with the gift of the pleasure machine, we have to make sure terror groups don't revolt so we can install puppet dictators who brutally stifle any dissent and make sure access to pleasure machines remain uninterrupted. It's also critical that we enforce anti-extremism laws. The opponents of the pleasure machine advocate traditional institutions of marriage, family, gender, community, religion. We have to silence these agitators by labeling them as extremist hate mongers that inspire violence. We can put them on watch lists, ban them from travel, maybe even indefinitely detain them on spurious charges. Now, we don't want to stifle all debate about the pleasure machine, of course. That might make us look too obviously totalitarian. So let's allow people to debate the pleasure machine, but in a controlled fashion. We'll set up two sides of the debate. The progressives will argue that people need to use the pleasure machine 24 hours a day. The closed-minded, old-fashioned conservatives will argue, no, 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 24 hours a day is degeneracy. People should only plug themselves into the pleasure machine for 18 hours a day, like the good old days.
The pleasure machine continues to proliferate until every person is plugged in nonstop. The technology also advances so that a bulky machine is not needed. The tech can actually be implanted into the body. The last remaining resistors say that this is the end of the human race. Human life as it was known for millennia is over and even the human body has been transformed into a transhumanist abomination. All humans are now subjugated by this all-controlling totalitarian system. But Pleasure Inc. scoffs at all this and says, how could we be totalitarian when we give people everything they desire. Sure, people can't change the overall system and we impose it on them by brute force, but that's okay because it's all for the greater good. So that's the metaphor. The pleasure machine is the secular humanist ideal. Human life should be structured around the individual pursuit of happiness and pleasure. This requires liberating people from all social norms and obligations because our obligations to others hinder our individual happiness. Technology can be used to free us from these obligations and facilitate our individual happiness. The pleasure machine represents this taken to its logical conclusion. Every time humanists tell people to throw off their obligations to others in favor of pursuing individual happiness, they're essentially pushing the pleasure machine. What, what is also a part of the metaphor is that the pleasure machine is not pushed onto people by telling them they must obey. Rather, it's pushed by saying, enjoy yourself, be free. The people who want to control you, they are the ones who say, obey. But we say, enjoy yourself. Aren't we so much better? This is, is exactly what secular humanists say to Islam. But the reality is secular humanism is a totalitarian system of liberation and equality that has been imposed on the entire world. It's a system that gradually and I emphasize this, gradually destroys basic human institutions like marriage, family, community, religion, and ultimately the human race itself. And whoever resists it is, con is considered a fundamental extremist who must be brought to heel. Islam also cares about individual human happiness. But Islam sets limits because there are other institutions and norms worth preserving. Institutions of marriage, family, community, religion, and the human race itself. This is why it is far better than secular humanism. Thank you very much for that opening, Daniel. Folks, if you're watching, I want to remind you, DebateCon 4 is coming up this November 4th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss it. Check out the description box for the link for that conference. And if you're from far away across the globe, Hit subscribe as we'll be streaming all of those debates live for the public. With that, we're going to jump into open dialogue. Gentlemen, the floor is all yours. I didn't know secular humanism was a totalitarian. What? Oh, I thought somebody said something. Totalitarian regime. I need to call my, uh, well, I don't actually have stocks, but if I had somebody who was managing my stocks, I'd want to call and put in an order on straw and oil because we are currently out of straw after that straw man and oil after it got pushed down that slippery slope in what has to be the biggest grandstanding whining misrepresentation of secular humanism and cancel culture that I've ever heard. Cancel culture, by the way, is the real wine here, but it's not about canceling. It's about accountability. And it seems strange to call secular humanism as Oh, it's just about pleasure and everything else. And if you dare to say something like it's okay to, for to, to forcibly marry a four-year-old, they're just going to call you awful. They're going to say, are you a child predator? It's okay. It's okay. We don't need to cancel anything. 
we don't need to ban the pleasure machine. The pleasure machine will either kill us off or climate change will, or work out ourselves. So since we're supposed to be having a discussion and I have to ask a question to start with, I'll start with my first question. One of the first questions I thought of, which uh, I thought of before we ever got here, is Islam encouraging terrorism or is it just really inept at stopping it from its adherence? Okay, let me respond to certain things. Like if we want to talk about terrorism, okay, the values of secular humanism, like the pursuit of uh, happiness, the pursuit of individual happiness, that was the basis of the French Revolution. That was the basis of the American Revolution. That was the basis of the Communist Revolution, the Decemberist Revolution, all of these revolutions that were explicitly on the basis of reason and improving human happiness on the basis of reason and overthrowing religion, that is the ideological basis of all of those movements that ended up killing uh, hundreds of thousands of people. Obviously, you are not going to consider them to be terrorists. That's very convenient for you. But the people who were being killed by these groups did consider them to be terrorists. The, the regimes that were displaced by these groups did consider them to be terrorists. But the winners are able to write history. Um, you keep bringing up like uh, this point about four-year-olds. This is like a straw man that was put forth in a previous debate. Nowhere did I say that a four-year-old should be, you know, in a sexual relationship. It was a hypothetical that was presented to me. And I answered that on the basis of the hypothetical that was presented. Nowhere did I say that, oh yeah, four-year-olds go through puberty and therefore they are uh, they should be sexually active. So you're so saying that's, a hypothetical four-year-old who went through precocious puberty, it would be okay to have sex with them because that's what you said in the debate. So we can, we can go through right. what I said in that debate from the beginning, but I thought you want to stick on the topic of the debate. Well, I'm just saying you're, you're now denying that you said what we all heard you say, which no, died popularized said, over the internet because Mike specifically asked, if a four-year-old goes through precocious puberty, under your version of what Allah permits, is it permissible to marry and have sex with her? And your answer was yes. No, the, the point that I put to that person in that debate was that if we accept that someone is going through puberty, that means that the person is going to desire sexual relations. They're going to desire to be sexually active. And that is a biological fact. It just doesn't happen at four years old. It happens at nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. And that's why when we look at American culture and Western culture, the children at that age are highly sexually active. That's the reality in the world today. So you, or I won't say you because I don't know what your views are, but the person that I was debating has no problem in there being, you know, this laissez-faire attitude towards uh, children 9, 10, 11, or even younger being active with sexual uh, dating, uh, going to prom, going to these kinds of dances, boyfriend, girlfriend, fornicating, that is all allowed. So you don't have a problem or people who are scoffing and laughing, they don't have a problem with nine-year-olds having sex. They just have a problem with the idea of a nine-year-old getting married. That was the point of that debate. And we don't have to rehash it. Well, I think Mike Jones, if you're watching, I think Daniel just suggested that you're okay with nine-year-olds engaging in sexual activity, and I want to verify that, because if that is Are true, you? if that's true, Mike, you're as repugnant as Daniel is, but I don't think that's true. So do you think we should have a ban on nine-year-olds dating? Um, what, what counts as dating? What if a nine-year-old wants to have sex with another nine-year-old boy? Is, do, you have, do we have laws? Should we have laws that prevent Th that? This isn't about... Should we? Not... Oh, now it's not about... 
Now it's not about nine-year-olds. Okay. I'm sorry. Do I get to answer your question? Yes, or please are you, answer. Are you going to ask and answer? Are you in favor of laws that would ban a nine-year-old girl from sleeping with a nine-year-old boy? Yes or no? We don't have yes law. Yes or no? Okay. One more time since you're going to do the yes or no thing. Like One more time with the question. Am I in favor of laws that would ban that? No. Okay. So you don't have a problem with nine-year-olds having sex? That's a lie, and you are the most dishonest person I've ever engaged with. You just forced me to answer yes or no to a question about whether or not I would advocate for a law. And then when I said that I would not advocate for the law, you suggested I don't have a problem with it. I have massive problems with it. You're the one that doesn't have a problem apparently, with it. Apparently which is not why enough this to is suggest the legislation. debate we are ever going to do. And I don't care if you lie about my views. Don't fuck kids. So tell... Tell the people in this, tell the people in this country that are following secular humanism. Tell them they need to hear it more than anyone. Secular, secular humanists who are secular humanists. Who are I'm ones telling who are in, you, in, don't fuck kids and don't advocate for it. Yeah, and maybe they need to follow. Maybe they need to follow. Why would we do that? Well, maybe they need to follow. Done that. that. Nobody's ever done that. Maybe they it's need to follow. It's you that. that have done yeah. that on stage. The sexual from revolution that had. From secular a secular humanist basis, was not about nine-year-olds. Yes, it was. No, yes, it, it wasn't. wasn't. You don't know the, what, about the sexual liberation front. Okay. You don't know about NAMBLA. You don't know about all of I these. I know about NAMBLA, movements. and we've worked yeah. against NAMBLA. Yes. Look at the unlike theorists. you. Stop interrupting me, okay? You got it. You got no, it. No, the it. no interruption shit is done when you start yeah. talking about whether or not nine-year-olds should be fucking. Don't grandstand, okay? You're not some hero I'll here. Grandstand you're not as much some as hero. Here. Wow, oh, I'm amazing. the guy wow. that's here debating oh, in fact. You're, so, you're so heroic, man. And you you're such a hero. Fuck kids. No, see, look at this guy, man. Look how perverse. Look at your sick mind, okay? Let's my you, sick it, mind. How about we talk about my your sick mind? You want to talk about your personal? You want to talk about marriage and sex? Is talking about look, my sick mind no, while no, no, inventing look at this, a man. fantasy. Come on, James. Of Some moderation here. Come on. Okay. Just shouting I'll the shut f up. word is not an argument. Just shouting Correct. the f word. And neither is saying okay. we should let nine-year-olds marry. Yeah. So. We don't need to talk about personal life, okay? okay you don't need back, to make any accusations against me. I'll talk about your boyfriend. So don't talk about me. So the thing about uh, this whole argument is that the whole point of this debate on secular humanism is individual happiness, the end-all, be-all of human morality. Your whole argument has been that we need to do what's best for humanity. The question is, what is actually the best for humanity? Is unhindered pursuit of personal individual happiness going to cause the best for humanity overall. And I'm saying no, because there are other values and institutions that are worth preserving. To be a married person, you have to sacrifice. You cannot be selfish and only care about your own uh, desires or your own happiness. You have to look at a couple, a marriage. Same for a family, to preserve a family with parents and children. You have to be concerned about a collective. Same with a community. Same for society. There is a conflict between the pursuit of individual happiness and what will make me personally happy versus the needs of these other institutions. I have to sacrifice and sometimes I, ha I have to do things that I don't actually consent to. Yet it is for the greater good of humanity. That's the main problem with secular humanism is that it prioritizes individual happiness. So I don't know why you're thinking about my girlfriend during the debate, but she says, thanks. Now, back to secular humanism. See, one of us. Oh, sorry. Up. I thought you had a boyfriend. I, I didn't realize. Keep going. I didn't realize. 
You didn't realize? You're a liar. You're a fucking liar. You're a fucking liar, and you want to fuck kids. I thought you were. Are you gay or not? I'm not. I'm not gay. But if I was gay, I would be happy to say I, just, I was gay. Okay. Anybody here think I would have a yeah, problem a, saying look, if I was gay? He's accusing gay? me of committing. No. Like, because it doesn't matter. This is one of the things that I. If you're gonna let hey, him hurl the f word at me, I can hurl the f word at whoever the fuck I want, fucker. Look at this. He's not personal, but I'm it's personal. not a magic word. He was going to respond to Daniel. No, he's he's saying highly offensive things to me right now. I, oh, <laughs> you just referred to my girlfriend as my boyfriend, but I'm the one hurling highly offensive things. You know what? We're I'm just offended. learning something right now. Let me do. You're a liar. I'm just. Let's just get back to this. So one of us showed up today. For to debate three topics, and I'm the only one that addressed the first one. The second one, don't care that much about because what's compelling doesn't have any impact on what's true. But the third one's important because is the world better under secular humanism or under Islam? And did I present a hedonistic view of secular humanism that is just about? Nope, that's the straw man that Daniel constructed in his science fiction Star Trek fantasy of what's going to actually happen if we do this. It's, it's his metaphor for what secular humanism has done to the world. Not because there's anything demonstrably wrong about it, but because he disagrees with it. And in particular, his particular view of Islam disagrees with it. He hasn't given you, an, given you no reason why secular humanism is a problem. And under secular humanism, he can practice his version of Islam. He just can't marry a fucking nine-year-old. Yeah, that's all you got. All you have is the F word and this personal yeah. attack. Ignore the whole argument. Right, so this is an interruption the, that I'm we're still, talking about. I'm still talking. Look, we're not Ignore talking about your homosexuality or whatever. Is the we're not talking about homosexuality here. responding. <laughs> we're not talking about homosexuality here. Let me get back to you, the debate. We were. So a thought experiment. You're not familiar with a thought experiment, but it's where you go through an I'm idea with and work out, the ex work out the implication. Yeah, you're not familiar with a lot of things apparently uh so i've only taught about thought experiments many many times on, but i'm not familiar some moderation with i didn't i let him talk if he's just going to accuse me of lying from now on i'm going to interrupt everything he says from now that's on. good and i'll interrupt everything you say from now on we can just sit here the yeah. whole time because as long as you're we gonna lie we can i'm gonna call you out for your lies you lying liar let's go to a new topic from eyes your openings Sweet. Yeah. So let's focus on the violent history of liberalism. Let's look at the reign of terror. Let's look at the invasion of Iraq, the invasion of Afghanistan, the spread of democracy and human rights. Oh, that has nothing to do with secularism. It was people like you uh, and Christopher Hitchens, for example, or Sam Harris that said, we need to bring democracy to Iraq democracy to Afghanistan. They don't have women's rights. So let's bomb them. And even if we have to nuke Mecca, I, I believe that's what Sam Harris said. That's the price we're willing to pay for the spread of liberal human rights. Those people all claim to be humanists. They all claim to be fighting for the benefit of humanity. They all claim to be fighting for liberation and equality and consent and women's rights and gay rights and transgender rights. All of these things that claim to be part of your value system, they were also advocating. But you conveniently, like all of these atheists, want to wipe your hands of that. That's a complete cop-out response. The values that you uphold are a part of the values that were trying that were spread through.
throughout the world by force, brutal, violent force. And I mentioned many historical examples up until today. It's still happening. It's still happening with an international human rights law, universal declaration of human rights. It's all based on secular humanism. But you don't want to take ownership of that. That law is imposed. If you violate the universal declaration of human rights and international law, the UN will place sanctions on you. You have a security council that will punish you as a nation and starve you to death because you do not uphold those specific values. The analogy or metaphor with the pleasure machine is exactly correct. This is exactly what happens. They will bomb you, starve your children to death, and say, look, we're just trying to liberate you. We just want the best for humanity. That's why we have these laws. We are creating an international order of rules, and it's a rules-based order, so obey or you will die. That's the history of secular humanism. You don't want to acknowledge that history. Well, because it's a lie, and here's why. First of all, I'm not Sam Harris, and I disagree with Sam on a number of things. I'm also not Christopher Hitchens, and I think he was monumentally wrong about war. And while I served in the military for eight years, I have massive objections to what our Christian-led country did to try to put democracy everywhere. They fucked the world up, and what they did was they helped create more people who hate this country and more people who are now compelled to become jihadis than to become secularists, because the United States is not secular humanism in action, and in just the same way that he represented the United States uh, Revolution as if it was the principle of secular humanism. Secular humanism didn't exist until 1963 with the first humanist manifesto. You don't get to saddle everything that isn't Islam under secular humanism. And as secular humanists are here in the United States fighting for equality and freedom that allows you to be a Muslim and, my, and Mike to be a Christian and me to be an atheist, it wasn't secular humanism that sent people out and tried to conquer Iraq. And it wasn't me, so don't fucking saddle me with your delusion of what you think I believe. Let's address what I actually think and say, like I've done with you. Yeah, very convenient. You can mention 9-11, you can mention all kinds of terrorist attacks to attack my position and attack Islam. Islam condemns terrorism and attacks killing civilians uh, for the purposes of war. So you can saddle me with that. No problem. You can just have a cute little hashtag. I didn't. Uh, boomer joke about it. But when I, boomer, point out, when I point out all of these, well, you don't age well, my friend. Oh. But, when you, but when I talk about all of the tens of millions Classy killed, the end. tens of millions that are killed by your ideology, secular humanism is not killed by my ideology. No, I know killed by my ideology. Secular humanism, secular humanism, killed by my ideology. Nobody's been killed by my. Yeah, deny it. Say okay, it. We heard it. We heard. Has it. anybody been killed yes, because of my? Tens you're a of liar. Okay, fine. You are a liar. Fine. Tens of millions. Your hands are bloody with the my blood of millions. My hands are not bloody. Yes, they are. You literally went to war. Like you're the last person. Come on. Man. Look at this. Yeah, look at this. I'm sorry you have to yeah, look up to your words. about being classy. Look at that. I call him a boomer. It is classy. Is defending kids classy? Yeah. I think so. Chill, man. Chill. 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 What's that? You have no real argument. You have no real I argument. I have no real argument. Other the guy than who presented third, no real debate. argument oh, all you night is saying I don't have argument. you F that. You want to F that. All I've that's done is all curse. your argumentation is about. All I've done on. is curse, James. All, it's amazing. All you've done is, oh, that's not the debate topic. Oh, where's the scientific evidence? Sorry, oh, you, you want to F the debate topic. You want to F kids. Dur. That's your whole debate. Not my fault. You're a grown-up. You can say fuck. It's okay. Yeah. Right, let's adjourn. So...
Yeah, so secular humanism is a variant of liberalism. All of the values that you claim as a secular humanist that you cited in your opening statement were also the values that were cited as the justification for the invasion of Iraq, sanctions of many Muslim countries around the world, the invasion of Afghanistan. Those secular values were cited as the justification. That's why they call it Operation Iraqi Freedom. That's not a coincidence. Now, you want to wash your hands of that very conveniently, that's fine. I'm not saying you personally supported those wars. My argument is that your ideology was the basis as a justification for those wars and that invasion. I'll ask you a very simple question. Do you believe in international law based on secular humanism? Not the manifesto that no one knows about and no one has read, but the secular humanism, the idea of separation of church and state, individual happiness, equality, etc., those values that I focused on in my opening, do you think that should be the basis of international law? And should there be consequences for violating international law? Didn't I make a very express thing in my opening about the separation of church and state and how I would be fine, and I'm a secular humanist, and I would be fine with a secular state, but not a secular humanist state. Didn't I make that clear? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, so secular. That's that's exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, that's exactly so, why I'm attacking. So you're equating secular with secular humanism. And so anything that's secular is bad, right? No, I said that secular humanism is a sub-ideology of liberalism. The values in liberalism include value for freedom, value for equality, maximizing so freedom, freedom and equality. No, I say that should be balanced by other concerns like marriage, family, community. I don't, I don't know that marriage, marriage and community are necessarily the parts, but I'm not opposed to either one of them. But, but if, that's the, but, that's the but conflict. Sometimes marriage, but if you're gonna, but if you're gonna, but if you're gonna, we both want freedom, and you can't just cite, well, freedom is the problem. That's not what I said. Freedom. I said freedom Liberal. is a value. Freedom is a value, but it's it should not be. Uh, the only value that I didn't we maximize. Say it was. Okay, so How what other are you value? Straw man me. So what other value? So for example, in marriage, you Consent. have certain obligations. You have when you sign a marriage contract. Traditionally, that requires uh, giving up certain rights, giving up certain duties. If a person just wants to opt out of that because they're just not happy with a marriage anymore, uh, should it's they be able divorce. to do that? Should divorce be allowed? Yes, I'm in favor of divorce. I'm actually divorced. No fault divorce. Well, no-fault divorce gets more into politics and financing, um, but I, so I don't know necessarily which version of divorce is better, but since I'm still really good friends with my ex-wife, I should probably message her and see if she's okay with the way we got divorced. We don't seem to have a problem with it. Or for example, like within marriage, you're not allowed to sleep with whoever you want, right? You my wife was allowed to sleep with whoever she wanted while we were together. But is that good? Is that a good thing? Did yeah. that, that help preserve your marriage? Yeah. For most people, it doesn't because when you, when a spouse I would, cheats, I wouldn't think for so. most people, it's not cheating. Yes, when for okay, call it whatever you want. But when no, a spouse is involved with other people, that will biologically reduce the attraction that the male feels for his spouse, and that that, that is that is part of the reason why marriage customs throughout the world involve fidelity. Yeah. You have to be uh, faithful to your spouse. That's part of being in a marriage. So if you want to preserve marriage, you have to restrict someone's freedom to sleep with whoever they want. If you say, no, 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 freedom is most important. They should be able to sleep with whoever they want. That undermines the institution of marriage. Why? Because there's this biological attachment that's destroyed when your spouse sleeps with other people. Yeah. So um, this notion that 
I have no problem with marriage. I have no problem with people being in monogamous, committed re relationships. I'm in one now, but and I've been in one before. The notion that your marriage is right for everybody else is problematic. There are plenty of people who have marriages that are different. There are sometimes two men who get married, and it works out. Two women get married, and it works out. Evidently, there's some polygamists that that do it, and it works out. I don't. I don't get it because it's not me. It's not anything that. I have one to participate in. Well, see, but the whole premise was, do you but, value marriage? Not you're okay but, with marriage. Because if you value something, then what kind of policies would you put in place to preserve that institution? I don't, I think that, it, that an institution that has to be preserved through policy probably isn't nearly as valuable as you think it is. Okay, then what about the policies for scientific education? Like, what if there are countries that are like, we don't need any scientific education. There's only religious education. And actually, we're not going to educate most of the population. Would you have a problem with that? Should yeah. there be a policy in place that, no, every country has to implement this type of educational model? I don't think I get to decide what, what model an, another country does, but I can certainly speak out about how they may be harming or depriving their citizens of a robust education by denying it. I would prefer that they permit it and then allow freedom. That's the thing. That's the thing with freedom. If you want to say, oh, we should deny these, this type of education because we want to preserve this particular society, that's a problem. That's the problem that you built your entire um, uh, metaphor around, is there are freedoms that you don't want to allow because you're terrified of what will happen in the world if you allow them. I, I, you don't get to decide for the world. And that's why secular humanism is better than your version of Islam. Because no, you get to, you under get mine, to you get to keep thinking this and living the life that you and whoever you convince to actually be with you want to live within reason until they come in conflict. And then somebody's got to step in. So is there any obligation for children to go to school? I, I am a fan of providing required public education. So it's required. So you, you're a fan of yes. imposing without a child's consent that they be placed into schooling. I'm a, so where, where I'm they an learn, education where they, rapist. Where they learn. Yeah, so you don't believe in consent. Yeah. Yeah. So, laugh it up, you 300-pound so gorilla. Here's the thing there. that Daniel doesn't seem to understand. So, so yeah, yeah, here's the thing that Whenever Daniel you get caught on an inconsistency, you make a joke here's, or you blast the F word. Whenever you're caught out on an inconsistency, an inconsistency, you just blurt out the F word. You make time, a joke for your plant to laugh every at. Every time like I have a there. good point that he you, knows Whenever you coming, don't have an answer, whenever you don't have an answer, you have to make a dumb joke. I have an answer. If you shut the fuck up, I tell you. Oh, big man, come and say that right here. Come and say it right where? Here. All right. Yes. I'm you said that to come over there and say it. I'm yeah. not violent. I would never do anything. You can't violent. respond to any point. You just make I, a joke. I can't okay? respond to any so point. So you do you believe in schooling up. rape. So you believe in would you do you want an educational rape pretending that I don't you're have a, you're do you a believer want an answer? An educational you don't want an rape, answer. Okay. You don't want an answer. I bet truth. your boyfriend finds you really. He doesn't attractive. want an answer. He doesn't want an answer. He'd rather pretend I don't you have You believe you're a fan of educational rape. Do you want an answer or are you gonna pre pretending I don't have one? Because I fucking got one. You you said it. You made a joke, but that's the reality. You're an, you're a fan of forcing children without consent to go into schools where they will be subjected to a scientific worldview that will affect their entire lives at the deepest level, 
you have you have no problem the with the lack of consent in that situation. How terrified he is of my answer. And he yeah. wants to prop up his straw man again about what I'm actually saying. Yeah. Here's the thing that Dan doesn't understand about consent and about parenthood. Parents don't own their children. You don't. You are the caretakers of those children. You are instilled with a responsibility to raise responsible members of society and to teach them the minimal things that they will need to carry on a productive life when you're not around. One of the ways that we do that is through a tax-supported public school system because parents are not equipped to work multiple jobs and teach their kids quite often. Some of them aren't qualified to teach their kids at all. And so we come up with a standardized curriculum that we put in public schools, which represents in some cases, at least the bare minimum of reading, writing, arithmetic, things like civics and stuff like that, because those are the things that kids are gonna need to know when they come to be responsible adults, when it's time for them to vote, when it's time for them to decide if they're gonna join the military, when it's time for them to choose for themselves as an act of freedom, what religion, if any, they wish to follow. That is why I'm not only a fan of public education, I'm not only a fan of compelled public education, I think that raising the next generation of kids to understand how the world around them works so that they can function well within it is a moral duty. There's your answer. Yeah, so you're a fan of educational rape. Basically, you believe that you should compel children to go into these school systems where they're taught your atheistic standards of scientific evidence, the only things that are Did true, that? that can be scientifically proven uh that is justifying atheism you're indoctrinating children with atheism within those school systems because you're teaching a scientific worldview there is no choice that parents should have in that there's no choice on the on the part of parents that system is imposed you you have no choice as a parent in certain countries in the US we still have homeschooling options but they're fighting to liberal secular humanists are fighting to actually destroy that option you go to a country like germany you go to a country like sweden Bastions of secular humanism. They also have banned homeschooling. You have to put your children into these secular schools where atheism is the uh, ground, ground assumption. Uh, not Islam, not Christianity, not Buddhism, not Hinduism. Atheism. So this is non-consensual. It is uh, quite violent because if you don't send your children to school, the police will come and bust down your door and take your children by force. And this is what has been happening to Christians and Muslims in Sweden. It's a uh, quite a heart-wrenching sight to see the police bust down the door of Muslims and take children in the name of secular humanism. You are not putting your children in schools. Therefore, we are going to take your children away. This is the reality of secular humanism. Yeah, go ahead and wipe your hands. Oh, that's not literally me. But you said you're a fan of compelled education. So you're an, a fan of these types of uh, policies. Yep. Yeah, there you go. This might be an opportunity to go into the Q&A. Let's do it because I'm ready to go home. You got it. Folks, if you want to come up on this right side of the room, that's where we'll take questions. And Chris is going to be our MC for the Q&A. So he'll be holding the mic. Thank you, Bernard. Call around the
very good for you because I don't think I'd last in five years. All right, first question. Okay, so one of these peaches was out. Hi, guys. One of these peaches. Your speech was about uh, populism and how a lot of people believe in God, but how does people people believing in it make something true? Yeah, so the do I have to repeat it or people hear it? If you could repeat it, because I was distracted and did not hear. Thank yeah. You. So how just because a lot of people believe something, why does that make it true? So I agree that just because something is popular does not in and of itself make it true. Um, the, the belief in God or the belief that harming others for no reason is wrong, the belief in law of contradiction, um, those are not just uh, common, they're common because they're biological. And that tells us something important about the way the human mind works. It tells us something important about how we understand reality. Belief in God is also one of these things that is not only extremely common and widespread throughout history and even in our current times, it is something that also develops biologically. So that tells us something about the structure of the human mind and how we understand reality. So I'm not making a simplistic argument that, oh, if a lot of people believe it, that means that it's true or that's evidence that it's true, even though it could be evidence, but that wasn't my actual argument. Could I, before we get to the next question, Thanks so much for asking your question. Do you mind if I ask you something real quick? Like, first of all, how old are you? Twelve? Were you or your parent bothered at all by me saying fuck so much? Yeah. Okay, thanks. <laughs> uh, great, great parenting. I, I, I was in the Navy for eight years, and it's just a habit, but also words aren't magic, and people who spend more time focusing on whether or not I uttered a specific phoneme than the actual concept of what I'm conveying, that's all I need to know. Next question. Yeah, my question is to Daniel. Um, on secular humanism promotes freedom, oh, let's say, human rights, and you are against human rights, right? No, I'm not okay. against human rights. I just want a balanced understanding of what is actually a human right. Okay, so are you against your right as going to be protected on a secular humanism or just other people that you disagree with? No, my rights are not protected as a Muslim under secular humanism. As a Muslim, my countries are being bombed because they lack secular humanism. My people are being killed because they are not following secularism. In this country, I'm being monitored. I'm put on watch lists. Muslims are put on tra travel bans. Muslim views, if you express your Muslim views in universities, you'll be kicked out of departments because you're not abiding by liberal secular principles. Yeah, personally, privately, you can be a Muslim and be you know, in a science department or a history department. But if you start talking about Islam as a as, as a value system that deserves to be respected and deserves to be implemented politically, then you're an is Islamist and you get kicked out of these departments. So no, as a Muslim, I don't feel like I have this uh, religious freedom within a secular society. Secular humanism imposes atheism on the population. That's why atheism increases. It's not because of the inherent rationality or compellingness of atheism. It's because atheism has to strip people of their natural intuitions and brutalize them into making them into atheists. And that's what the French Revolution was about. That's what the communist revolution in Russia, where they annihilated 
tens of thousands of churches, tens of thousands, they murdered Orthodox uh, preachers and priests. Look at uh, the enlightened totalitarianism from Napoleon and how many churches he abolished and destroyed. This is the history of secular humanism, and it's all on the basis of maximizing liberty, maximizing equality, secularism, secular humanism. This is the actual bloody, brutal history of it. So first of all, that's not the history of secular humanism. Um, it is a history of some aspects of atheistic regimes. The problem with Soviet Russia and other others were that essentially the state became the authoritarian church, not secular humanism, but a state-run body that was unquestionable the way a church would be. That's not secular humanism at all. Daniel has to invent a fiction about secular humanism trying to impose atheism. And for the record, I would object to any Muslim anywhere being on any watch list merely because they're Muslims. I would be interested in having somebody go through your browser history considering what you've actually advocated for, but... Yes, yeah, you're joking about it, but, but you, do, you do advocate but, for restrictions. People who have... You just don't, don't want to hear what comes after the but, do you? All right, never mind. Fuck it. Let's go through his browser history. Yeah. Yeah, see, I mean, this is... Like you make these points, but you're just you're. I make it, these points, and you, you are, stop me from actually going to the end of it. You are See, actually as I making said, the point for me. That's as I that's said, I'm opposed to it. And while it might be interesting to find out what's in Daniel's browser history, I don't think that I have enough information to warrant actually doing that or allowing anybody else to do it. Thank you for finally letting me finish the thing that almost exonerates your ass. Next question. Uh, what are more? Right, my, uh, my question for you is, in Islam's version of freedom, does that include the liberty to not believe in Islam anymore? And how much disagreement is there amongst scholars? Yeah, there's no disagreement on scholars. So I've discussed this, have many videos on uh, apostasy punishment in Islam. And the idea is that every community and every uh, culture has rules that punish or stigmatize defection, like leaving the group. Even social media, like social media, you express certain views, you're going to be banned from the community. You can't be a part of the community because you violated community guidelines. In order to maintain a community and a society, you have to have certain rules to prohibit certain types of speech, certain types of ideas. Every religion has these kinds of restrictions. Every culture has these types of restrictions where they punish defection. And Islam is no differently than this. So, yeah, so that Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, uh, in Buddhist society, you can find stigmatization of defection from the religion. Because how are you going to maintain that society uh, if you allow people to just go and mock the underlying belief system? And this is exactly what we find within secular society as well. Muslims like me, I can't say certain things that I believe online. I can't say certain things that I believe publicly. Why? Because I'm seen as an extremist or I'm I'm uh, inciting violence and therefore I have to be put in jail. If I burn a certain type of flag, if I make a certain type of joke in any of these secular societies on the basis of inciting hate or it's inciting extremism, I will be uh, put in prison or fined heavily or potentially even worse. So this is found in every single legal, cultural, and moral system. What should the penalty be for saying that the Prophet Muhammad sexually assaulted a nine-year-old? Insulting the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, according to Islamic law, 
within Islamic uh, jur um, jurisdiction would result in death, death penalty. For me as well, even though I'm not Muslim? If you were in an Islamic society with Islamic jurisdiction, according to Islamic law, if you insulted the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, you would be executed after due process in front of a judge who would look at the evidence and make sure that you have actually violated the law after full due process if you are convicted of that crime of blasphemy then according to islamic law you would be put to death good thing i'm not in an islamic country okay on to the next question okay so my question uh is to you audience you need to those of you liberals have ex executed plenty of people for their beliefs Dictators kill plenty of people for their beliefs. In the Muslim world, uh, Muslim world is not run by theocracies. Right now, Muslim, the Muslim world has many individuals who are dictators on the basis of secularism. They establish secularism and they're trying to wipe out Islamism or the idea of Islam as governing their societies. They will execute uh, people who violate liberal speech. And this was a colonial policy. The European Enlightenment thinkers, people like de Tocqueville, people like John Stuart Mill, they advocated the death penalty within Muslim colonies for anyone, for example, who insulted the French flag, anyone who insulted um, democracy. Why? Because they're trying to establish this secular humanist regime. And if the majority of people start speaking out against it and critiquing it, that threatens the establishment of secular humanism. So according to these liberal thinkers, it is worth executing these individuals who are speaking out, they're just expressing themselves against secularism. We need to execute them for the greater good of liberalizing these colonies. That was their explicit colonial policy. And I've mentioned this in many of my debates. Liberals, secular humanists do kill people for their ideas. I'm a liberal secular humanist and I oppose the things that he just talked about, as does the first, second, and third secular humanist manifesto. And he has to reach back way into history before secular humanism even existed and commit an equivocation fallacy to suggest that that was secular humanism in action before it even existed. Well, people like Sam Harris. People, Sam Harris didn't exist back with the Tocqueville. Sa Sam either. Harris, okay, he has just as much a claim to secular humanism as you do. Yeah. Sam Harris does think you can execute people on the basis of their ideas. He thinks that Muslims can be nuked, nuclear bombs dropped, because Islam is the mother load of bad ideas. Fine, well, that's not your understanding of secular humanism. Well, other secular humanists have just as much of a right to claim secular humanism as you do. You don't have a monopoly on it. As the only person on this stage. You don't have a monopoly on it. As the only person on the stage who could call Sam Harris Chuckles having done here. multiple hey, events with him, that's not true. <laughs> Got some good jokes for us, Chuckles? All right, next question. This guy's been laughing at every boomer joke. Right, yeah, Millennial no, joke. I get, I get my shots in too. Millennial joke. Don't make me older than I am. Well, first of all, it's not just me laughing. But yeah, it's anyways. pretty much just you. <laughs> I am. I laugh too. Wow, you guys look a lot alike. Anyways, my question to you, honestly, and this is a legitimate question, you know, respectfully. If, for example, I have the intuition, this kind of goes back to like the first version of it. If I have the intuition say like that i feel like i'm sick you know that there's something wrong with me you know i have that distinct feeling that something is not right uh i go to a hospital the hospital runs all sorts of tests and everything you know they check me for everything i see all sorts of physicians specialists and everything and they tell me there's nothing wrong with me that it's essentially just all in my head 
my question to you is, if that actually happens, then how is intuition evidence, like you stated before? No, I, I didn't say, again, this is not my position, that we just rely on intuitions and then there's nothing else to consider. We have to have a holistic, organic epistemology in order to understand what is real and what is not real. So if you as an individual are personally suffering from some kind of delusion or hallucination, yeah, you'd go to a psychologist and there would be experiments or there would be uh, some kind of scans that are done on your brain to see if you have some kind of personal issue. But those are not the types of intuitions that we're talking about when we talk about morality, aesthetics, religious uh, belief, uh, logic, mathematics, etc. Okay, next question. Uh, my question is for Matt. Cool. Uh, I was wondering, do you believe that our right to individual consent is always above our response, like our responsibility to our family, community, and state? And if you do, I was just wondering how a state could exist like that. Um, you said you were in the military. Um, by that logic, wouldn't you be against a draft? Uh, imagine if in World War II, the Russians were, you know, consent was their number one priority. You know, they wouldn't allow retreat. They wouldn't allow for a draft. And the Nazis might have won World War II. So, yeah. yeah. So, no, I don't think that consent trumps absolutely everything. I think there's foundational principles that exist kind of in cooperation. The same with um, my view on morality, where, you know, health is generally preferable to life. There are certain circumstances, by the way, we have a volunteer military and I volunteered for it. So that was consent. Um, I'm not completely sure how I feel about a draft, but I do recognize the arguments for it and where it may be um, viewed properly as a civic duty, as a, as a member of society, a member of a particular society benefiting from that society in the same way that, you know, people say taxes are theft, but taxes are, are what you pay to there's roads i drove on roads here our taxes contributed to that uh i can whine all day long about how my taxes don't go to or go to things that i wouldn't want but there are some things that you sacrifice in part with your social construct with whatever country you're living in and if i wanted to i could pack up and i could go move to a muslim country and i would then consent to whatever their laws including them killing me over you know mocking the prophet um and that would be me doing it. The biggest problem in the, agreeing to it, consenting to it, the biggest problem in this is that we have people who are born into a contract that they didn't consent to. And this is another reason why I'm in favor of making sure that we educate people so that they know what their rights and, and their responsibilities are. So in much as I'm not a free speech absolutist, but I value free speech. I'm not a consent absolutist because otherwise, how could you lock somebody up in prison? You can argue they consented to being locked up in prison by virtue of them violating the law and, you know, getting caught. You know, if you didn't, be, but there are people who go to prison innocent. And I think those people have a cause of action to oppose those things. So, no, I don't think that free speech is absolute. I don't think that consent is absolute. They are foundational principles. And in much the same way that, I value a right to death with dignity. My friend, my friend Dave Warnock is dying of ALS. He does a show on Tuesday nights. And um, if Dave wants to end his life, I think he should be allowed to. And I think mm -hmm. anybody who wants to end their life when, when their suffering has exceeded um, what they're willing to bear should be able to do that. But 
I also think that we as a society have a responsibility to make sure that people aren't running around willy-nilly killing themselves for taking a permanent action for something that's temporary. So there's a, there's a balancing act in there. Secular humanism is not about asserting, here's the position and we've got it right. All secular humanism is doing is saying, we want to get better at getting better. And so we're going to use the best tools that we can find for doing that. So secular humanism advocates for individual happiness and maximizing freedom and equality. You can't consent or you can't opt out of being born on earth. And you have international human rights law that imposes that secular humanism on every single person on the globe. You can't opt out of it un unless you're going to get on a rocket and go, go to Mars. This is a non-consensual system that is imposed on everyone by force. Next question. So I have a question for Matt. Um, so if we were to develop some technology that will allow us to d determine uh, whether uh, or not if like a certain animal uh, likes something or is enjoying something or wants something um, reliably, would you then uh, be in favor or, or would you then be okay with like a man having like a sexual relationship uh, with his like uh, pet monkey if like they both consent if they uh, both want it and they both are happy with it or uh, or would you be in a uh, law or would you be in a favor of a law uh, banning this so in the science fiction realm where we can determine whether or not another animal has consented to an action i would favor their consent as long as so, so if they're happy with something and if they want something, they feel like you, if like a monkey wants a banana, they keep. So, so I'm trying to trying to answer this. Happiness alone is wow. Cut from the same cloth. Happiness, <laughs> happiness alone is not enough. The fact that you do something that makes someone happy, or the fact that they derive pleasure from it, isn't enough. It's not. It is a component of whether or not they're going to enjoy it, but it's not a component of consent. Consent needs to be an informed, enthusiastic consent. And there needs to be a demonstration that you understand the consequences, which is why kids can't consent. You need to understand the consequences of this and that you are consenting to the responsibility of that act. If we had a science fiction device that showed that any other non-human animal uh, was able to cognitively comprehend and consent, then I would have, well, I don't know of any grounds under which I could object. But in that scenario, if somebody came up with grounds to object, then we'd have to consider that as well. But generally speaking, it's about consent. Yeah, the grounds are that it's an animal. Yeah, that's that's a good ground. Maybe we should just kill it. Yeah, that's that's what our food supply is based on. Slightly irrelevant, but everybody who's not a virgin in this room has gotten funky with a monkey. So... Um, for Daniel, George W. Bush was famously a right-wing conservative, not a liberal. He was a Christian who advocated teaching creationist pseudoscience in public schools. So what did Bush ever do or say that gives you the idea that he ever expressed support for either secularism, humanism, or liberalism? Yeah, so this is the issue that we had in our debate, actually, last year. I'm defining liberalism as the maximization of freedom and equality, the pursuit of individual uh, happiness. That's why I'm defining as liberalism, not left-wing, right-wing. If you look at George W. Bush and even his father and their justification for sanctions against different countries, invasion of different countries, which I know that you oppose, they didn't cite the Bible. 
They didn't cite Christian principles or we, they didn't cite the crusades, the justification on the basis of the government taking action, the executive branch taking action and Congress approving that military action was on the basis of spreading freedom and democracy. And that was what was sold to the American people, not oh, we're just trying to convert them to Christianity. So I'm judging that action on the basis of the ideals that were expressed. And that's why I'm saying that this is a perfect example of secular humanism leading to the deaths of millions, the displacement of tens of millions. And this is only the most recent example. History is littered with examples of these ideals, these values being explicitly cited by proponents of secular humanism for the purpose of war and invasion. That's the only way that liberal secularism has spread in history. It's only spread through violence and imposition and death and sanctions. That is the historical record. We also have to note that you did not answer the question. Moving on to Herbert Walker Bush, who said that atheists could not be citizens because this is one country under God. Where did he ever advocate anything? Did he implement any policies? Did he implement any policies or legislation that... So he was uh, a stealth secular to that. humanist? Like he just, okay, so he they're, just expresses they're anti-secular that. and they're anti-humanist, but according to you, because you get to redefine things however the fuck no. you want. No, you just don't understand. Hey, don't say fuck. Well, I just don't the problem, understand. as we saw in your previous debate, you have comprehension oh, yeah. problems. So just go you're, sit down. Excuse me. Right. Go, sit down. go sit down. Go sit down. Go sit down. Show's over for you, Aaron. You got okay. spanked well, once. Go okay. sit down. Go to sit down. Okay. Sit down. 60-year-old who dyes his hair and looks like a hipster. Okay. I, I'm trying to. So first of all, yeah, I get asked a question. Oh I answer God. the question. The question so, was directed so, to me. No one asked for your comment. Hey, James, if a question is not directed to me and nobody asks for my comment, do I still get to do it or does this guy get to shut me down? Sometimes we do it. And then depending on the time, though. Sure. This one, I'm not for maximal freedom. That's a cartoonish misrepresentation that he's using uh, like that. But if you want to think that the Bushes were secret secularists. Uh, uh, cool. All right, next question. Cheers from the Bay Area. Um, this question is for Daniel. Uh, you mentioned, um, you referred to, to Matt's uh, partner as uh, his boyfriend. And my question is, when is being a bigot ever okay? Uh, because that's not a good look. When it's sanctioned by the prophet. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I just thought he had a boyfriend. I thought he was gay. I didn't know. So he corrected me. He says he has a girlfriend. Okay. You're a liar. Okay. I'm sorry that triggered all of you. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that triggered all didn't of you. didn't trigger anybody. We're I'm mocking, sorry that you're so we're angry at me. You were lying I'm and sorry about that. I didn't mean to offend you. You were lying. We're, we're upset that I didn't you were mean to lying you. and bigoted and tried to take that shot. Didn't mean to trigger you. I'm not triggered. Don't be triggered. Oh, I have a correction, it's and it's speech. an important correction. I was reminded I'm not a millennial. I'm Gen X. That's what Gen X people do. See, I'm not a boomer. I'm Gen X, but I'm not so young to be millennial. So I'm, I'm Gen X. Thank you. Right. Next question. Thank you. Yeah, this one for Daniel. So um, Islam goal is to make every individual uh, a slave to God, right? Am I right? Say that again. Islam goal is to make every individual a slave to God. 
A slave to God. A slave. Islam's goal? Goal. goal. Yeah. That's your question? No. I, that's a final question. Yeah, continue the whole okay, question. Okay. Um, how is it, um, from a human perspective or standpoint, how is it good, a good thing for a human being a slave? How is it a good thing for a human to be a slave? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so... It's an acknowledgement of the reality that we are all created by God and he's all powerful. So we are to acknowledge that as the purpose of our creation. That is what is beneficial for us in this life and, in, and the next life. That's the Islamic theology. Um, so the idea of slavery, um, it's slavery to the almighty, to the creator, as opposed to your ideology, as opposed to other people, as opposed to it's a higher uh, metaphysical level of recognizing what is actually real and the reality of our world, which is that God is almighty and he controls everything that exists and he has power over everything that exists. He has knowledge of everything that exists and he is the sublime and almighty. The recognition of that is the slavery to God, the submission to God, and that's what Islam means. Okay, next question. About compelling uh, factors of religions. Um, I was wondering, compel compelling, compelling compel factors of religions. I was wondering whether uh, if anyone of you agree that the Hindu concept of hell would be the most compelling because there is no eternal punishment and you have the possibility of reincarnation which you don't agree with i don't know whether he agrees so it can come back uh, the, the the soul can come back and live and until it succeeds to get to heaven so is that not more compelling than other uh, hells I, i find that I find well, compelling may not be the right word i find it more appealing than some other potential hells for sure the, the problem though with the odyssey is um which are, should you be striving to avoid a particular hell or to seek a particular heaven? Because that's where they like, you know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was that, that wasn't for me or those. Yeah. I thought it was directed at me. Okay. So. Yeah, so the idea of reincarnation, the idea that people were themselves, but they could also be like frogs or insects or other animals, that is not a very compelling belief. Um, and yeah, so that's the answer to that. Okay, next question. Thank you. This is our final question of Ray. Currently, right now, Christianity is being mandated onto children of all religions in public schools across the state. There are educators and legislators that have the opinion that children who practice Islam should not be allowed to pray throughout the day or have religious rights. Secular activism and education promotes having safe spaces for children to pray, for all children to wear religious clothes if they choose to practice what they believe, taking into account that it's not realistic that we will have an Islamic school system in Texas anytime soon. Is it more compelling to have Christianity forced onto your children and their rights to practice Islam removed or to have secular policies within public education to protect their rights. Yeah, so my position has been very consistent on this. I'm in favor of Christian schooling. I'm in favor of Christian standards. I'm in favor of Christian-inspired government. I wish that the United States was a, was a Christian theocracy. That would be a much better situation for Muslims like me. It would be a much better situation for Families who are Muslim or non-Muslim Christian, it's just an overall better system to have a Christian-inspired 
country or a Jewish-inspired, Judaic country or other traditional religions than a secular humanist uh, nation based on secular humanist or atheistic laws. So I've been very consistent on this. Now, if it were the case that they would force me and my children to believe in Christianity, then we would just leave. We would, we would leave the U.S., but still, would that Christian theocracy that we couldn't live in, objectively, would that be a better place for the people in it, for the population in it, than an equivalent secularist country? Definitely. Definitely the Christian theocracy or the Jewish theocracy or the Hindu theocracy, whatever, that would be better than the alternative of an atheistic, secularist society. That's because of the nature of traditional religion. Traditional religion doesn't sacrifice everything on the altar of individual happiness and freedom. That's what makes them superior because they actually can at least make an attempt to preserve institutions like marriage, family, community, things that people care about and find valuable. Secular humanism destroys mark. all of that. We're at the 1030 mark. I do want to keep our promise to our speakers and let them go. I want to give a huge round of applause. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a true pleasure. Thanks for coming tonight, folks. We really appreciate it. I just want to say thanks for that question. I have nothing to add. We'll let his answer stand. Thank you very much for, for coming tonight, folks. Have a great drive, a safe drive home. And we hope to see you at DebateCon in Dallas, November 4th. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And folks, if you're watching at home via the live stream, DebateCon 4 by Modern Day Debate is going to be on November 4th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss it. So check out the link in the description box below where you can get tickets on sale now. And not only that, but there's a crowdfund there in case you can't make it. If you'd like to get perks while backing the project, we have signed photos of your favorite debater as well as signed emblem pages. And if you are watching from across the planet and you can't make it in person for DebateCon 4 on November 4th in Dallas, Texas, want to encourage you hit that subscribe button as we have many more debates to come. You don't want to miss them, so hit subscribe right now. Thanks so much for all your support, folks. Our goal is to keep these debates free for the public, including our live streams from our conferences. So if you are excited about Modern Day Debate and our vision of providing a neutral platform so that everybody can have their chance to make their case on a level playing field, consider becoming a member. We've got memberships for the channel in the description box. You can find the link to that, or you can click that join button down below near the subscribe button. We also have a Patreon in case you aren't into YouTube channel memberships. And last but not least, thanks so much for your support. If you haven't yet, hit that like button. And keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. Take care, everybody. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.